Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha. I'm one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Welcome, welcome to any new listeners who caught Steven Hero's excellent Gundam Wing History podcast and are tuning in for the first time this week. I figured we would go around and reintroduce ourselves for anyone brand new. Uh, you might know our, our next host, Steven Hero. Steven? Well, well, thank you for that intro, Ignis. Uh, thank you for watching. If you happen to watch my... Uh panel at Otakon online. I had a really good time putting it together. Um, it was my first anime convention panel, and it was interesting to... So I was a, I was lurking around in chat, but unfortunately, I had a formal engagement that I could not wiggle out of, so I was not able to you know keep up a back-and-forth conversation with the audience, but it seemed like people enjoyed it, and it was I got a, like a real visceral joy from uh, seeing people appreciate my work in real time, so that never gets old. So I, I'm now looking to uh, recapture that feeling again. I will say, if so, if you enjoyed my history panel, keep your eyes on the lookout. I have really nothing concrete to announce now, but uh, there are two anime conventions that I am looking at, both occurring in November. One has said they've got they're going digital, and the other, I it would be a bold move not to go digital at this <laughs> point. So if they put an event, if they put an event down, these are two bigger conventions. So I'm gonna try to get maybe two potential panels in there. We'll see. I'm toying with the idea of a big O uh, history panel and something else, if all goes to plan. But I hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, if you need to, uh, and if you need a good primer to recap on Gundam Wing's production history, we unfortunately Otakon Online hasn't put on the video, put up the video yet. Uh, we might ourselves put up in the future. But if not, definitely check out our first episode. I believe it's episode zero. Correct. And all that information is recapped. I really just took the script I used for uh, that podcast episode and, and cut it down just a smidge to fit into the 30-minute slot. Steven, if you could uh, uh, boil down your mecha taste in a, in a few words, maybe just a sentence, what, what, how mm-hmm. would you describe that? Uh, atmospheric and moody. I enjoy very simple and sleek mecha designs. I'm slightly more real robot than... Uh, I feel like I'm on a mecha dating site. Slightly more real robot than a uh, super robot, though my uh, I think I have eclectic taste within the mecha genre, but t- I often tend to gravitate to things that are more... I don't know, experiential, meaning like I can experience the environment. So I kind of like the ponderous nature of the two Pat Labor films, for example. Uh, the atmospheric scenes in Big O I highlighted. Whenever we get to Evangelion, I'll be, even though I will readily admit its faults, I'll defend it to the hilt. Things like that. And, you know, I'm a big fan of some of the Gundam OVAs in particular that are especially real robot. Yeah, War in the Pocket, you know, you're... you're... Those sorts of things. I I will be happy to, to make Mechanations the mech dating pod. I, I'll, I'll be happy to take up those laurels. Um, <laughs> we just need a classy name for a mech, data, mech dating site. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, we uh, Our next host, PMC Trilogy. Uh, PMC, would you, uh, in, in with given the same sort of challenge, how would you describe your mecha taste? <laughs> I think my, my mecha taste is so, certainly overlaps with what Steven described in terms of appreciation of atmosphere and mood, but, but I'm also... I, I like to think that I'm sort of maybe between our the two other co-hosts here because I do also uh, appreciate a good, uh, you know, extremely character-centric narrative. Uh, you know, for example, I, I especially I say that now is the way I watch mecha, uh, mecha anime. Uh, when I was a college-age kid, Gurren Lagann slid off me a little bit, but we recently uh, rewatched Gurren Lagann here on the podcast, and now, like, Simone? Yeah, let's go, Simone. Let's go, A+. plus. <laughs> Give it to me. I definitely... I, I, My experience is mostly in the arena of real robot and the aesthetics of real robot. Or I tend to gravitate, gravitate towards to more. But 
certainly learning about the history of Big O and the way Big O borrows from you know classical Super Robot made has made me interested in Super Robot. So I might even say that my taste is is evolving. Now, I cut it in front before you could really introduce yourself, but uh, why don't you talk about yourself and your interests and how you ended up on the, the Mech Podcast? Sure. So, uh, again, uh, I'm PMC Trilogy. I am probably the most online of the crew. Uh, I do a lot. That seems fair. I do. I tweet too much. I also uh, regularly stream games on Twitch. Uh, I've been involved in speedrunning for a few years now. I've been to you know, a GDQ event, ESA events. Uh, I historically my my interest tends to be third person action games some first person shooters uh, more recently in the past year or two i have been highlighting mecha games within my my uh, uh, repertoire uh shogo mobile armor division famously a first person shooter that attempts to borrow from the aesthetics of 90s mecha anime including lots of pat labor and eva references uh, was the game that i took to uh, to gdqx in in 2019 so that should give you a sign of a kind of a sense of what i do uh, and mm. certainly you know, you'll, you'll hear me from time to time talk about mecha games that I'm trying to keep an eye on, both new releases as well as highlighting some of the older stuff. All right, yeah, that's that. As far as the games go, I feel like you have much more of, uh, of a thumb on that than the, either of the two of us. I feel like uh, I am Ignis Maddox. Uh, I'm I'm the voice that you're you're probably going to be hearing the most as we uh, go through these mecha shows. Uh, as far as the spectrum of taste goes, uh, that that uh, uh, Stephen Hero introduced. I, I unfortunately sit alone on the island of of Super Robot, right? At least for right now, um, but that is fine. I am I am typically the one who's going to have a more of a, a storytelling focus, more of a especially what PMC was talking about. I'm definitely a a character story person. I, I gear less about about the plot, big time plot going on, more than the individual interactions, the growth. I, I like the. Uh, when it comes to anime, my taste starts, you know, like most people or most young men uh, uh, would be starting with shonen, and and so I'm I'm really fascinated with the the idea of characterization through plot elements, and Mecha is one of the more explicit versions of that, especially Super Robot, where often Super Robot is about the way that a a character is embodied through that robot. You know, we were just talking about. If you listen to our, even our most recent episode, we, we talked about the Big O, and one of the things that I really enjoyed about the Big O is how clearly the the or at least at the end the the robot the Big O and Roger Smith, you know, embodied each other. Uh, that sort of stuff is the best. I, I love uh, screaming about friendship. Uh, I love when uh, robots have spiritual connections to their uh, their pilots. Uh, but mostly, I I'm really focused on writing and and very specifically how there are differences in translations i'm going to be the one who's calling that out the most often likely um i'm hoping to improve my personal library of terminology and repertoire you know i'm usually looking to be reading something related to what we're talking about most times uh, although i'm very bad at integrating that into my analysis unfortunately i was reading i was reading stuff about noir while we were covering the big o and i very rarely had the opportunity to bring it in because i was too busy talking about twin peaks instead but uh in any case uh, before we really dig into our normal topic of the week, which of course we will be our triumphant return to Gundam Wing, we typically spend some time with some unrelated sort of uh, a go-between. We are 
three longtime friends and we uh, we typically tried to, to catch each other up and also it's a good way to sort of dip into our our conversation which tends to be a little bit more rigid uh and strictly focused on the topic at hand uh did you have anything for us this week boyos yeah uh, i got some us. Uh, <laughs> well maybe let me let me yeah. uh clear the air with a quick quick aside before we get into the last of us discourse <laughs> Uh, this uh, this past week or so, I have been playing Chrome Hounds. Uh, Chrome Hounds is a, two, I think, 2008 Xbox 360 exclusive that was developed by From Software, published by Sega Worldwide. And it is a game that, in terms of its pacing and style, uh, calls back to more, more Mech Assault, Mech Warrior than it does to either like Armored Core or, or you know, or faster games like that. And apparently, mm. it's, it's real heyday was in 2008-2009 when the servers for the Xbox Live stuff was still online and uh, in particular apparently uh, it was you know it was a, a mech game that had customization and I it's one of the more complicated customization screens I've ever seen because it actually allows you to uh, rotate and place weapons in like piles so you can have like much in the way oh, that like, Mech Warrior has hard points, you can have like a cluster of you know three shotguns tied together to make one big shotgun. Um, so it was definitely uh, it's it's interesting to play. I like the pacing of it. Again, I said it's a little faster than than like playing Mech Assault for the Xbox. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems like the single player campaign, which is sort of a, a collection of six campaigns that are meant to embody what the designers view as the different roles, like a assault, sniper, scout, etc. Mm. Uh, those those campaigns have a little bit of story tissue, but they're really more sketches than they are necessarily like a fully fleshed out story mode. Even though it's called a story mode, uh, right? At this point, I've done four of them, uh, and so. I'll probably be finishing up the the last two. Uh, there is, are some speedruns out there, but it's it's pretty straightforward. I I've enjoyed it for for what it is, uh, but unfortunately, chances are a lot of the parts I could probably work with. I'm told you could only get online, and it it wasn't it wasn't an era I think where you know maybe now the expectation might be that if you close servers, you'd release a patch or something that would that would allow you to access at least the parts offline, mm. but. They never did that, so uh, it's you know it seems like uh, a lot of the 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 garage is probably off limits at this point, but it, it's still fun to play. It's an interesting snapshot of a of, of from software doing non armored core mech stuff. Some people really swear by that game. Do you have a favorite? Uh, I don't know if this does this have a funny name for the uh, the frames or mobile suits or holons. So it the you know the title of the game is Chrome Hounds and the name for they hounds? their hounds, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Did, okay. So there is there like a so this is less of a characterized type of mech. This is more just like oh, I, this is the speed frame or the scout frame or the 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 murder frame. It's yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you have like the the customization really comes I think in two places. One is the weapons, which I already mentioned, and then also it has a pretty broad uh, selection of. Uh, leg types uh you know this is this is a situation where you have bipedal and reverse joint but you also have uh wheels hovercrafts treads you know hovercraft 
I'm sorry. That I gotta I gotta put a damper on that. No, it's okay. Um, it's, I've been saying that when I was streaming the game, I was like, oh, we got Hoovercraft. Hoovercraft apparently was the particular for the scout. Uh, so that was that's a lot was a lot of fun because the scout the scout type was just sort of uh, the game places an emphasis on what I would call some uh, war simulation adjacent feature sets where you are not unmuch like an Ubisoft tower you're crossing a map which has like a grid so it's like you know numbers up top and letters on the side and it's like go mm. to square G four and uh, acquire the Combus Tower for true gamers yeah true gamers only. <laughs> Um, I will say, well, PMC, I'm, I was watching some of your streams. I got to get you on that Sopranos train. I, I have the episodes. You got to uh, watch them. The show's phenomenal. Oh, the actual show you mean? Yeah. Not, not <laughs> so a I, road to whatever. So I also finished uh, playing uh, The Sopranos Road to Respect, which was a 2006 licensed video game in which you play as uh, Joey LaRocca, the fictional uh, game-only <laughs> son, I believe, of uh, of Pussy LaRocca, who is, spoilers, I think, apparently gets killed by Tony at some point during the show. Yeah, season three. There's an excellent dream sequence with him when he's a fish. You might have seen it meme before. What the heck is going on? Well, you've the sold Sopranos. the TV show to me right there, Steven. I don't, you don't even have to do anything more. I'm just going to go watch The Sopranos now. This is now a Sopranos podcast. <laughs> There's been a flowering of Sopranos podcast recently. I'm sure this is the content that Soprano fans require. Academic-minded mecha fans discuss Sopranos episode by episode. Yeah, right. Uh, Progressive-minded mechanation. Mech fans. Speaking um, of flowering discourse, does that mean that it's time for uh, Stephen Hero's thoughts on The Last of Us Part 2? Yeah, all right. I was actually going to write that down, but I was like, it was this morning. I was like, I'll, I'll fucking just wing it. Wing. <laughs> that was unintentional. Hey! Gundam but, wild beat. I'll give a few updates about what I've been doing otherwise, just because I'll talk more about some of this shit later on. Not in this episode, but future episodes. Uh, Metrion Odyssey is still slogging through the grind, 35 hours in, third stratum. I'll be playing that at least until October. Um, I started Near Automata. I, I started, but life got a little busy for a bit, and then I didn't play it, so I want to restart it and get back to that maybe next <laughs> week. So I'll have thoughts weeks down the line. I you, finished... You, I, oh, jump in, Ignis. Uh, I was just gonna say I I don't know I I would rec <laughs> I would I would maybe think about just just going through it because you 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 will need to restart regardless so it is it is possible that you should maybe just push your way through I know I only got um, like an hour in though so I guess that's fair I guess I, I'll I be re for, revisiting those scenes when I get to like what route B route C etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yes you will that's that's <laughs> uh, yeah, and and there's other games I want to play too so there's like a, a time ticking above me before. Uh, 13 Sentinels, and I did want to check out Moon when it dropped, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But anyway, I finished the Master Commander novel, uh, the Aubrey Maturin uh, novel for you Patrick O'Brien fans out there, uh, Far Side nice. of the World. Um, it's the 10th novel in a 2021 book series. Uh, book 21 was unfinished. He died. And uh, it's in definitely it's top tier uh, Master Commander. Um, it's more, to really boil down the basics of the plot, it's more like man versus nature. And I think that works better than some of the more um, imperialistic colonies between European powers. I mean, that, that stuff's kind of cool, too. Like, you know, capturing a, fr a French frigate and, uh, you know, sinking a Spanish corvette or something or capturing an American whatever the fuck boat. Those are fun and good, too. But I think the, sh the books really shine when it's just the Dr. Stephen exploring, like, the wildlife and cracking jokes on board the uh, the HMS Surprise. There's like a real closeness on the ship 
and just watching all of these disparate figures like get into a rhythm of like a daily rhythm on the ship and watching them interact in that environment, that close, tight environment is really gratifying. There's a really beautiful scene in the book where they're near the equator, uh, near the center of the South Pacific, and it's a really warm day. The, the ocean is very placid, and they're in the captain's uh, quarters. If you've seen the film and they're playing the violin and the cello, it's very similar to that scene. And uh, Stephen is looking at the ocean. There are these luminescent animals uh, dotting the surface. And, of course, he's very interested. He considers himself a naturalist, so he, he geeks out about that sort of stuff. And he gets too close, and he falls in. And uh, the captain, being his best friend and uh, lover, if you want to read it that way, jumps in after him. And the rest of the crew is celebrating the ship so they don't actually hear them crash into the water. So the ship goes on, and it's just the two of them floating placidly in this very calm sea, and they're half terrified, but half intrigued, and it's just, like, very contemplative as they, like, simmer in the glory that is nature. And the, some of the best scenes in Moby Dick are very similar, and that scene just owns. Uh, there's there's some whaling action in this book, too, so for you Moby Dick fans, if you had to check out one Master and Commander novel, this is definitely the one. The film is loosely based off the bare-bones plot of this novel, but the film takes elements from various Master and Commander novels and cobbles it together into a very, very tight uh, narrative. So it's It definitely... Oh, sorry, Stephen Hero. Uh, it definitely feels like uh, that Star Trek has taken up the mantle that these Master and Commander mm. narratives seem to seem to have. Like, it seems a lot like, uh, you know, taking these these sort of like not necessarily action packed, but uh, uh, stories with verisimilitude about being on these vessels and taking part. Like the way you describe the uh, the the setting, the game board, so to speak, of the the political you know, struggles between the, the different factions is, is something that I feel like the the uh, fictionalized setting of Star Trek kind of feels more comfortable doing than, like, necessarily doing a series about, like, oh, this empire versus this fucking empire. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, do you do you feel like that's something that... Um, I, for me, like, I feel like sometimes there's ways you can kind of accept that, you know, these are just... Uh, 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 narrative justifications for why we are able to like partake in in this story right like mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's discourse uh, uh every couple years about for example like batman like just as a different sort of story like oh why doesn't bruce wayne use his his wealth to just fix all the problems in gotham instead of you know beating up quote-unquote criminals every night so to speak like i feel like this take comes out every couple of years and it's just a complete misunderstanding of why the elements of batman are the way they are do, yeah. do you feel like that's that's going on with master and commander sometimes where like you you sometimes that you bump against that stuff or are you able to put that stuff aside of like well i know this is for forms of government that i don't really support but oh, yeah. I, I this is really well told story <laughs> yeah i talked about this before i mentioned i alluded to this in a previous episode that if you're looking on the at the surface at master commander it could definitely seem very problematic and there are definitely some problematic elements but i would say not with a capital p um the character of steven kind of put it, it's not like a complete um Dena- uh, complete criticism like imperialism naturally because they're benefiting from British imperialism right. and it's not very raw and I guess you could kind of view um, Captain Commander Albury as kind of like 
rah-rah patriotism, but it's more about his connection to the crew. However, the character of Stephen is an Irishman, and he fucking hates the British, and he is at every turn ready to condemn. He's ready to condemn Napoleon all the fucking time, but he's ready to condemn and really check those power structures. It's not an overwhelming, like, condemnation of them, which some people would expect, but it's enough where I can feel comfortable recommending the novels to other people, and they're not as... They're generally dealing the conflicts with various Western imperial powers, Western white imperial powers. So it's not like, for example, I read an Edgar Allan Poe novel earlier this year, uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. And there is just some fucking racist trash in the like back <laughs> half of that novel. There's some parts in the novel that really sing, but there are parts I would have trouble recommending that novel to someone where I wouldn't have those same troubles recommending Master Commander. The, the issues of power structures... And the lack of power, a critique of power structures in Master Commander also exists in Star Trek. So that's, it is a very similar jumping off point. Totally. Yeah. And speaking I, of Star I, Trek, oh, jump in, I guess. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I recently bumped with that where in an episode uh, of I Claudius, where mm. a character re- referred to uh, a person from Africa as, as a Negro. And I was like, uh oh. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh boy, this show came out a long time ago. Yeah, there are bits um, of that too. He started writing the novels in the 1960s, maybe, and um, he died like in 2000. So you could kind of—he's not—he's definitely not like a dyed-in-the-wool progressive. But um, I would say that there's a lot of thought put behind some of the conflicts, and the, the character of Stephen Owens, uh, played by Paul Bettany in the film Vision, if you're a Marvel Comics fan, and uh, he helps to mollify some of those concerns for me. Yeah, it's the same thing, I think, with I, Claudius. I think that's adapted from a novel written in the same time period, I think. Yeah, like I think 1950s. Uh, a World War One vet, I believe. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, real quick, uh, we, I mentioned Star Trek. I'll talk more about this in future weeks. Uh, I'm at the Voyager uh, tipping point. I started season four. Uh, Kess is gone. Uh, Seven of Nine is in. I'll have more thoughts on that later. But um, it is picking up a bit. Uh, I watched Lower Decks. I'll have more to say in future weeks. I need to watch more to get a definitive takedown. So I think we're at the Last of Us discourse, uh, gentlemen. Oh, boy. All right, I'll try to keep this as concise as possible because I've been bouncing some of these ideas in my head, and I've, I've been living with some of my criticism for the last uh, week or so. I mean, it took me a long time to beat this game. I don't. There's not an internal clock I checked, but it must have taken me at least 35 hours, I think. I did take my time with it, maybe 30 hours. That sounds right. And uh, so to recap, if, if you're concerned about spoilers, stop listening now, jump in maybe 10, 15 minutes from now. Um, so I've played Last of Us Part 1. You end Last of Us Part 1. I think Last of Us, uh, at least it thinks it's about um, cycles of violence and what those cycles of violence do to people. If you take a look at Last of Us Part 1, you have Joel, who is delivering Ellie to a hospital out in the West in order to deliver her to the Fireflies, hopefully to produce a vaccine. Upon getting there, he realizes that Ellie will have to die. He's formed a deep and intimate connection with Ellie. She is... He considers her his daughter in all but name, and he goes on a killing rampage and makes sure that doesn't happen. Um, right. The game deals with cycles of violence, but it chooses not to break the cycle of violence. It doubles down in that cycle of violence in order to present a moral dilemma to the audience. I, I Real quick. Yeah. Before you go further, I just want to point something out. Uh, do you know how Neil Druckmann, the director, feels about this particular moment? Like what he says. I've tried it to avoid all Neil Druckmann comments, but please tell me. Well, so I want to mention this just because I feel like it is it is worth knowing going into the thesis of The Last of Us 2, that, that Neil Druckmann feels that the way that Joel behaves in the at the end of The Last of Us 1 is the natural state 
of fatherhood. That yeah. this is just a logical means by which a father would act if their daughter, son, what have you, progeny were, were in peril. This is the action that any logical person would take. I, I think that is worth knowing when you frame the because man what a take <laughs> what, what but anyway continue no because uh, that that definitely tracks with some of the Joel scenes and the Joel flashback scenes in Last of Us Part Two which isolated I didn't hate but you could tell the game has a real you know a, a big love affair with Joel and I'll talk about that soon but anyway the game chooses not to break from the cycle and it delivers you a moral dilemma um, depending on how you look at it it's either deceptively simple or just plain simple um, I aired more on the latter when I first played the game um, I've had some conversations with some people about the ending since then I won't say warm to the ending but I have been a, I have a, come, come back to and evaluated the ending for what that's is worth um, last so, of us two or one last of us one uh, so, oh, okay. But, I mean, I, I don't really view it in a better light. It's just I have had some conversations about it. So it's been on my mind is what I'm trying to say. Um, so starting at Last of Us 2, um, you start playing as Ellie. It's about four years later. And uh, early on in the game, Joel is killed by Abby. Abby is a daughter of was a daughter of one of the doctors that you brutally murder in the hospital in Last of Us Part 1, um, thereby creating another cycle of revenge or a cycle of violence in the form of revenge. She's on a revenge mission, and she kills Joel gruesomely in cold blood. I'm not condemning her, by the way, just that's what's on screen. And then Ellie goes to Seattle in order to put down Ellie and her companions who were there. Now To put down Abby. To put down Abby, yeah. yeah. And she puts down a hell of a lot of other people as well. So that's the first part of the game. I will say that traveling Seattle with your um, companion and then lover, Dina, is really great. There's a lot of really great quiet moments between them. Um, taken in isolation, some of these scenes are... The characterization is not bad. They're, it's, they're at times well written. Um, the they're not too digressive. What I mean by that is they have very simple conversations about the world around them. They might be looking at like an old record they find on the ground, and there's a lot of like meaningful pregnant pauses about how this world has changed. And those parts really land with me. There's a really great exploration element where it's just you and Dina in this quiet Seattle, overtaken by nature, clearing buildings filled with uh, infected that at times resonated with me. I think that's the game's strongest point. Um, we're maybe about four to eight hours into it uh, before they introduce a lot of other factors. I think that's when the game really shines. Um, this shit goes down, then you're later playing as Abby, who is, you get then Abby's perspective. And the game thinks it's really delivering some like highbrow criticism, and it's really just, I'm quoting partly Rob Zachney's review here, but I did come to similar conclusions, and I try not to really look at any of the criticism before I finish the game, but it, it's really, it dresses up this big production, but it's, it really is a morality play that really doesn't have anything else to say that Last of Us Part 1 did not already say. It's creating <clears throat> the same conflicts it is unable to break the cycle of violence but the whole the game thematically keeps nudging you in the direction that isn't revenge bad it shouldn't these cycles of violence stop and the game doesn't have the courage to actually stop them it just continues them now i know it is a game about killing but in my mind that really shows a dearth of imagination that they cannot create gameplay concepts around the fact other than just mowing down hordes of living breathing humans and the game wants you to like the game rubs its nose in you in its realism the game prides itself by saying you killed someone take stock of that we even name each npc we want you to feel the weight of each death and yet it has no way to square that with the player which is increasingly frustrating 
I also have some issues with the fact that it's a game that prides itself on realism, which is not an issue I have with. Actually, in some degrees, I'm not even talking about the violence here, just the realism, realistically taking stock of human emotion and human physical capabilities, like just showing you how brutal and raw this world can be. But then in its storytelling, it kind of breaks from this realism, which in my mind is a little unfortunate. So what I mean by this too, it, it thinks it's a very subtle game at times. And I think it's good when you're writing a story to create distinct parallels. But in Last of Us Part Two, essentially the theme is you have Ellie, she's seeking revenge. You have Abby, she's seeking revenge. But don't they really have a lot in common? So they create these very distinct parallels to the point where it's almost like providential. It's almost comically similar. Ellie collects cards. Abby collects coins. Ellie's surrogate dad, dad, was killed by Abby. Uh... Abby's dad was killed by Ellie. Ellie has a pregnant friend who's injured. Abby has a pregnant friend that's injured. Those those divides are just too too coincidental for me to always take seriously. This is a minor point, but it does break the realism for me. And the game really never answers the question about these cycles of violence, and that's one of the reasons it's so frustrating. And not to mention that compounded with 25 hours of gameplay where all you are doing is murdering, despite the fact that the game constantly criticizes you seeking revenge. And But as a player, the, a lot of enjoyment I get is successfully completing a mission where I have to kill many, many people. And that is frustrating to a degree. At the end, it never really answers those questions or ties them down in a neat thematic package. And that is incredibly frustrating. Sorry, I was talking yeah. for a while. I wanted you guys to chime in, perhaps. No, no. I mean, so for me, and this is why I chimed in with the Neil Druckmann thing right at the start, is is that I feel like it completely frames the experience, right? Like, he, he that's that's why it doesn't feel the need to answer, like, because, you know, it, it feels like these behaviors are endemic or somehow. Yeah. Like, this is the natural way to act. It has a very, and, like, Hobbesian view of the world that we're all brute, nasty creatures. But the, the further issue, too, is even if you believe that, Last of Us 2 does not expand upon that original thesis it makes the entire game partly redundant i would have much rather see to build from last of us part one even if joel didn't break the cycle of violence he continued and created new cycles of violence how might ellie and the survivors then maybe start to build on these foundations because then it makes last of us two kind of rote and kind of not meaningless but not substantive so you know and pmc i'm not i hope i'm not overriding anything you had to say here but the 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 thing I, that I think is interesting to note about cr- creating the parallels between Abby and Ellie, which is something that we we shout out all the time on our show when we're talking about the shows that we cover, because it's a really strong way, a really clear way to to connect characters or ideas, right? Um, and I think what the thing that frustrates me about the conversation around this game, unfortunately, is that... A, a lot of these ideas are... are uh, Neil Druckmann and Sony want you to treat like 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 innovations on uh storytelling in video games and like almost every single trick it plays is a trick that hideo kojima played on you in metal gear solid 2 and 3 you know like fucking at this point like 10 or 15 years ago you know like i'm thinking about the um the pain battle in metal gear solid Mm -hmm. 3 where every npc that you've killed will get in your way in that battle like you you it, it, it it's not the same as naming them and having a nearby npc be like jeff no, you know, but like at a, at a certain point, like the 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 game needs to like something that I uh, boy, w- when you talk about Bioshock Infinite, it invites 
a, a a giant cursor a red dot appears on your forehead as as all of gaming discourse especially if you also say the words uh, ludo narrative dissonance then i, I tried many dots... to avoid saying that but i did feel a distinct dissonance when playing it so, uh, like, for me, I I don't particularly, and I think this is just a result of JRPGs for me, like, I, I don't particularly give two shits about ludonarrative dissonance. I do not care if a gameplay experience is reflected in the story experience or what have you. This is not a thing that matters to me. I, I don't think that Cloud, Tifa, and Barrett are serial killers because I have done 700 random encounters against soldier class people and like those 700 million soldiers that i killed or don't aren't they're not real if it didn't happen in a cutscene, it doesn't happen so but with the last of us th- this is a different story yeah, entirely agree. yeah but continue i don't want to cut you off and and because they're they're intentionally trying to with its story make a point about enacting violence mm-hmm. on other people right they're intentionally trying to make that and and with the last of us one like just to return to the the point about the ending real quick like the, the before all of this happened before last of us two came out the 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 sort of nice thing about the last of us one was that it, it trusted its audience to not have a final word on the story it didn't want necessarily to like it left room for people who think what Joel did was a natural thing and fine to do. It allowed them to do that, and it allowed people who were comfortable with the idea of a story where that ambiguity existed. Like sometimes, just enjoying ambiguity is a thing, mm-hmm. right? Like that—that's a, a I would say a, a Stephen Hero thing. Um, but the problem with this game is that it continues to uh, there. There is a Griffin McElroy uh, uh, episode. Uh, well, I guess every episode of Besties is a Griffin one, except for ones he doesn't appear on. But um, there's a Besties episode about Last of Us Two, um, and Griffin kind of defends the the way that this story is told in a way that I think is interesting. Um, but that that basically it, it 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 needs to be this way and this explicit because there is an audience that just would not get this message any other way. And the, that what Griffin's take is is that. For when he looks up discourse, good faith discourse on this game, uh, he he is seeing more average folk considering the idea of like the the implicit violence a character takes place in, um, and you know for me and the reason I brought up Bioshock Infinite earlier and Ludo narrative dissonance is is that I felt that the way I don't know if you remember in Bioshock Infinite, but if you killed someone with with an, a, a sky hook or mm-hmm. air hook whatever they're called there was a pretty sharp like shriek noise and it was usually pretty violent and and if you had elizabeth with you she'd be like Ugh. you know it should make like a disgusted noise and to me that always felt like the game acknowledging like yeah this is fucked up <laughs> you did a fucked up thing just now um and and you know i i think there's an element of that that you know, you can you, like it's nice for you to include in your game, but if your game isn't necessarily arriving at a conclusion, and you can argue that that Last of Us Two does, like I don't want to get into the actual, actual, actual end where uh, there's a a a bonk bonk on the head metaphor about the the price that you pay when you perceive or when you pursue vengeance, um, but it, it just doesn't feel like the all of the uh, uh, swimming in place to get there was was necessarily worth it it doesn't feel like playing through a miniature version of the last of us one where starring abby and lev 
is is necessarily like worth the, the surprise value of that. But you know, I, I'm open to the Griffin McElroy argument of like, well, there's an audience that this really opened their eyes in, in so far as like that sort of perspective and maybe that'll make it worthwhile in the long run. Yeah, but yeah. for like a game that postures itself as like a serious business game and a prestige game, like redu- not that I think this had credibility in the first place, but reducing those themes to are you team Ellie or or are you team Abby is is kind of a souring experience. And to be yeah. honest, I was I was pretty warm on Abby's journey. Um, I'm not to reduce it to those elements, but if you're going to ask me who I enjoyed more, I, I enjoyed Abby's story a little more. I think that has some the characters never really internalize any lessons, which is fine. I know what the what well, I guess it's not fine because I do have some issues with it. But I would have preferred if they you have a theme, but you don't land the theme or explore that theme more fully. And that is what I have an issue with. And the characters really don't internalize some of these lessons. BMC? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I, I think it's interesting that you bring up sort of the, the wider uh, your response to this. Uh, you know, I, I haven't played the game, but I did watch a lot of a, a streamer playthrough while I was you know doing my, doing my, my usual work. And... The, the thing that really struck me, and maybe this is relevant to Griffin's point, but what, it was just the uh, the fierce extent to which people wanted to be committed to rooting for Ellie or Joel when, to me, like, as Stephen Hero said, that it's a simple simple story. You know, one, one person commits fully to vengeance and it sucks, and the other person breaks off a little bit and it's less bad. Uh, and so it, the extent to which people reacted hostily to that or sort of looked for justifications, uh, of course, there's a lot of other bad faith discourse that I don't feel I need to repeat here when it comes sure. to Abby. Um, but even the people who are just sort of like, you know, I wanted to be with Ellie and Joel more and I, and I don't like new thing. And I'm like, well, what if, you know, as, as and I agree with a lot of the you know, criticism that Steve mentioned and also, you know, other people brought out, but like, even if I were to make you know my my lawyer's uh, zealous advocate case for for Last of Us Part Two. It's it's it still it still feels frustrating the extent to which, um, yeah, it's it's difficult to be like, well, this person you know became friends with someone from the enemy camp and uh, it worked out much better than you know than what happened to Ellie. So I don't, it's 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 strange because it's it be, especially because it's such a big prestige game. It's so frustrating to sort of. Like know like which le- which of the the nine or seven levels of hell that you're operating on in, in the discourse like where where are we meeting uh, when when talking about this game so I don't know it's it's interesting I'm I'm curious to see how this ages it's funny that Ignis brought up Bioshock Infinite because I will be deeply curious to see how the discourse ages for this game yeah I mean. Uh, part of the reason I invoked Metal Gear Solid 2 is that I, I'm reminded very much of the Raiden discourse that was going on when when that dropped. Like, it seems like Ellie is, or I'm sorry, Abby is the new Arbiter in a lot of ways, right? Like, do you remember how mad people were about the Arbiter? And the Arbiter owns. Arbiter's everyone knows better than this. Master Chief. <laughs> yes, oh. everyone knows this. Yeah. <laughs> True um, um, real quick, I will, uh, I'm going to invoke Voyager for a second. I'm going to call this like the Tuvix principle. Um, essentially what with The Last of Us Part 2 is they just write themselves into a wall instead of breaking from the cycle of violence and doing something interesting and maybe actually building something in this very bleak world they want to tell us just how fucking dismal and bleak this world is and there's room for literature like that there's room for media like that but this is an iterative property and it's posturing itself as something that is more so you're going to have to do a little more like for Tuvix for example 
I guess the point of the episode is to show Janeway has to make hard decisions. And there's, I don't know if you solve that episode, the dilemma of that episode, without a stupid deus ex machina. But just don't write that episode then, because you're writing yourself into a wall. And I did feel at times that Last of Us just wrote itself into a wall. There's so many unique avenues they could have taken with storytelling, and they chose not to. And Joel gets off scot-free. The game, like, destroys Ellie's life, but doesn't decide to interrogate Joel's actions at all. Joel... Uh, Joel is like a, a saint in this game comparatively, especially with the flashback scenes. And in isolation, I really did enjoy that flashback scene, but when, in the con- in the greater context of Joel's actions, it really soured me because the game doesn't actually decide to deal with Joel's actions. I know the Abby segments do, you know, ipso facto deal with that because, you know, she is dealing with the loss of her father, but I, would, I really wish they interrogated a little more head-on because Joel seems almost like a quasi-mythical figure in this game. Right. I mean, that's again. That to me, it, that just exemplifies the the Neil Druckmann thing I was invoking earlier. Like, it, he doesn't think that Joel did a bad thing. Like, he doesn't. He thinks he did the natural fatherhood thing, and that. So it, it's hard, right? And then obviously Neil Druckmann isn't the only one who developed the story on this game, and blah blah blah. But like, it, it feels like a guiding principle to me, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like at least for the second one, like in, in the, before the second one existed, I felt like there was room in the world for. Like the idea that what Joel did was monstrous and awful, and and for for Ellie to get that like uh, like ability to have that reaction, but and there, there's so many more layers to this. Like I I, I feel like the the way that uh you know uh, there's been really good writing on uh the the ending of that game from uh all sorts of people. Gosh, what is that website called? Critical points. There is a a critical critical distance. Critical distance, maybe. I read um, some excellent uh, articles that I will link uh, to the, the the channel that will hopefully be able to put into the description, if I recall. Yeah, I'll shout out uh, Kat Bailey's U.S. Gamer article. She's re- she's really positive on the game, but she wrote a good review of it over at U.S. Gamer. Um, Callie Plaguey's GameSpot review was quite good. She gave like an eight out of ten. If I had to, if I want if you want to hear how she quantified it, and as for as much as I'm slagging on the game, I I did enjoy my experience with it. Um, if again, if you f- were to force me to do the gamer thing and quantify it, it would be around like a you know a seven, seven or eight. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I think that's something that uh, this is one of those where I feel like, unfortunately, just because this is something that Patrick Klepek talked about with on Waypoints one time, like you know, it's 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 almost a bit of a shame that we that there's so much t- discussion around this particular game because it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like this particular game necessarily earns it. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, speaking of earning, you know it does earn its critical discourse, Ignis. <laughs> What's that, PMC? Gundam Wing. Gundam Wing. That's right. Gundam Wing. Uh, I'm ready to jump back into Gundam Wing. Uh, uh, but first, before before we talk about the two episodes we'll be discussing today, uh, I wanted to talk about the intro real quick. The intro slaps. It's been a while since we watched this show, and I know we talked about the intro in the whatever episode we started talking about Gundam Wing. Uh, Gundam Wing was one of our uh, was our first uh, 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 show that we started to dig into. Uh, our the way we started to discuss this show is a little bit different than how we are now. I think back then we were doing three episodes at a time, uh, and there was a point where because of some real life circumstances, Stephen Hero had to divert from from PMC and I. I think that's when I went to so, Japan. Yes, yes, exactly. I think one day I got in uh, a car accident. 
Yeah, yes, there was a few other things. True. There, there might have been some emergency room trips in there. Uh, we're all good now. We're uh, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Hero Yui ran into Stephen Hero with a stolen ambulance. Sylvia Noventa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While screaming about Sylvia Noventa. Um, so, our if you go back to our backlog, you will find all the coverage of Gundam Wing up to episode twenty six. Uh, today we will be discussing twenty seven and twenty eight. But before we jump in. Steven Hero, you have a, a little bit of prep for us, is that correct? Yeah, dollop of history, not much. Um, I There is more Gundam Wing story to tell, production-wise. Uh, when we do Endless Waltz, I'll have, have that to share to you. I actually uncovered, there's a lot of stuff post-Endless Waltz. The, um, the Gundam Wing universe has been iterated on more extensively than you might think, and I'm not even talking about Endless Waltz here, so we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in the far future. Or maybe the not-too-far future, still 2020. But, uh, so... Let's say if you watched my original or listened to my, our uh, original Gundam Wing pod, the history pod, you have some context going in. Um, you might have caught my Otakon presentation. Um, I do want to touch upon one thing. So we're at the middle of Gundam Wing at this point, and there's one name I just want to touch on. It's Masashi Ikeda. He is the director of the show. Um, he was very enthusiastic initially about directing the show, which is ironic because by the midpoint, he left. He has a history of leaving shows. It's happened three times. He did not make it all the way through Gundam Wing. I'm not criticizing the man. I'm sure he got... There are all sorts of reasons why that could happen. We'll talk about some of them. It's a grueling work environment. I don't hold it against him. But he did leave midway through the production. Even though he is credited until the end, he stopped work after episode 26. And I hear that there is a distinct tonal shift, which I'm interested in tracking. But when we talk about Gundam Wing seasons... They really didn't exist in that manner. Like, recent Gundam shows, uh, Gundam 00, there are two distinct seasons. Um, I believe the same is for Iron-Blooded Orphans as well. There are two distinct seasons in the production Can run. confirm. And usually there's a break of about six months. And usually, historically, Gundam shows tend to shit the bed in the second season. It's really difficult <laughs> to s- sustain 52 episodes of like a, an epic narrative. It's just how it happens. A lot of anime in general, it's difficult to m- m- maintain that momentum. Um, so I'm really curious about tracking that with Gundam Wing because I don't – I think it loses some of that exuberance of the earlier episodes to tell a more cut-and-dried Gundam story, but that remains to be seen. But I just want to touch upon his departure real quick. So I got to episode 26, and I, and I mentioned this in my Otakon presentation. I'm sure someone out there is going to um actually me and have the correct answer. But I did a good amount of research, and I couldn't find a reason, a distinct reason why he left the production. I heard some rumors that Sunrise wanted him out. They were not happy with the direction the show was taking. Um, That's possible. The ratings were middling. He has a unique style. It's, like I said before, it's very mimetic, like I mentioned. It's easy to meme in 2020, but the characters do some unusual things, and they play it very straight, and maybe that's off-putting to some people, but anime has the tendency to do that in general, so I'm not sure. There were some stories that maybe he got burnt out, which is very much possible. And some of the stories just, and some of the other things just said he was not happy with the production, so he decided to leave on his own merits. I think it's a combination of him getting burnt out and Sunrise maybe wanting to take the show in another direction. So by episode 26, he is out, even though he is credited to the end. A gentleman name, his first name is escaping me right now, but Takamatsu, he continued directing the remaining back half of 26 episodes or so. Uh, real quick, I want to say, um, Akeda went on to direct the first 44 episodes of Inuasha. He also left the production of Inuasha. I hear the first 44 episodes are some of the best. Ignis, maybe you can attest. 
Uh, so, I mean, Inuyasha in that era is at that point, I, I don't know how much I would agree with that. I mean, those are probably the tightest, like, as far as, like, individual plot episodes go. Mm-hmm. Like, that's before it starts to really dive off. I mean, at that point, it's barely gotten started as far as, like, you know, uh, but it, it, those are probably the ones that people would remember most fondly. That, that's probably, like, the, the earliest period where the it's less of a, like, wow, I can't believe we're doing this cycle of, of events again. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, the fact that I think uh, Inuyasha is a Sunrise production, it couldn't the fallout couldn't have been too acrimonious. Maybe there wasn't even a fallout to begin with, but that was like the last major thing that uh, Kata directed until um, 2006 or so. Let me just check the date here. He approached early, like in 2004, 2005, he approached Sunrise with a new show that he came up with called Cluster Edge. It's about, um, I plan on watching the show because I have an essay brimming in the back of my mind that I might explore more fully if the thesis proves true, is that Cluster Edge is the show he, is what he envisioned Gundam Wing if he had full creative reign over the property. Because Gundam is a big property. There are a lot of hands in the pot. I'm sure he didn't have complete creative reign to make the show that he wanted to. I'm sure, like, you know, Edgar Wright, for example, working on Ant-Man, there were some conflicts there working with the Marvel property, so he left the project. Um, the Spider-Verse brothers uh, left Solo, a Star Wars production, So maybe, and there was probably some creative differences there. So perhaps Akita had some creative differences with Sunrise, and this was his chance to fully envision uh, Gundam Wing as he originally saw fit. Uh, Cluster Edge is basically like a military high school show. It's a you know a bunch of students at a prestigious school. I'm sure a lot of melodrama ensues. But again, he only made it halfway through the 25 episode show before he also left that. But I am curious to check that out to see if my idea holds true. Yeah, I mean it's difficult because especially when it comes to long form narratives, especially ones that aren't like sprung from. I can't imagine like your your own personal like like world or story or setting. Like I I'm not actually sure what it would be like to foster a story like that along. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I imagine it would be difficult. It would it, I can't imagine really like I you know I'm thinking about like group projects and I, I you know when in in like school that, that I felt like were pointless or whatever and <laughs> like not having the motivation to do that anymore. Sometimes I wish I could jump out of those halfway through as well. Um but I was struck with these two recap episodes, which, you know, these are. I don't know about you guys, but I, I typically skip recap episodes when they occur in shows. Uh, how do you how do you guys normally treat them when you're or do you not run across them that often? I usually skip them now that I'm older. Real quick, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, there was no split in the airing. That's the reason why we have two recap episodes now is because Akeda kind of left abruptly and they're like, shit, we need more time to you know, prep future episodes and see, you know, change the way the direction of the show is going. So they they wanted a two-week, three-week buffer, so they decided to, which isn't really that much time at all if you're animating a, a weekly production. No, it's nothing. So they decided to throw two recap episodes in and then resume three weeks later. So there really was not a gap, which is pretty impressive. That I mean, they must have worked incredibly hard in a way that I'm sure was not great for their health, no. <laughs> unfortunately. Um. But yeah, so uh, before we, we jump in uh, whole hog into this this first recap episode starring Relina, and for some reason, Hero, but I'll get to that later, um, PMC, did you have any... Because Steven Hero, you, you went on a journey. You, you went ahead and watched through all of the first 26 episodes of Gundam Wing, and then these two recap episodes... Uh, and so I'm sure you will have you will have some uh, uh, thoughts uh, on on that stuff. But PMC, 
what is what is your thoughts just off the top about dipping back into Gundam Wing so thoroughly this way? I think what really has me interested, uh, for, at the end of our first year of Mechanations, so right now we're in Mechanations year two, and at Dear the end God. of Mechanations year one, we had a little uh, end of year one podcast where we argued over the, the virtues of some of the programs that we had covered. And in particular, Gundam Wing was a sticking point between uh, me and uh, and Steven Hero in our in our rankings. Uh, and in particular, I was uh, I I was arguing, and I think factually, Steven Hero and I agree that Gundam Wing is very mimetic. Yes, no 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 question there, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but I, you know, to what extent does that? Um, does that provide merit to the show? <laughs> is maybe the internet seems to think it does. I'm not calling anyone out here, but people seem mm-hmm. pretty pos. Some people seem pretty positive mm-hmm. on Gundam Wing. I will say well, real quick, yeah, go ahead. Gundam Wings. Because I did a little history about this. I had an idea for like a side podcast. I have too much shit on my plate, so I'm not going to explore it. But I had the just communicating title. Fun fact: the when I first thought of an idea, like oh, maybe I, we can do a Mecca podcast. I was I was studying in Oxford at the time. Just a summer program. I didn't go to Oxford. I'm not trying to brag here, but I was in Oxford. I was in a field, very Stephen Hero activity. Flex, flex King. Taking a walk, and I thought of the name Just Communicating, and then it stuck with me. Like, this is such a good name, but I don't want to do a fucking Gundam Wing podcast. But anyway, there's a lot of Gundam Wing podcasts out there historically. If you go through the, the, the history, a lot of people have not finished the show. You, you could take... One just started recently. I won't name drop them. They got two episodes in two months ago. They haven't released another episode. There are quite a few Gundam Wing podcasts who just could not finish the show. I mean, it's easy to see why. Like, it's not okay. Here's okay. Gundam Wing is is a lot of fun to watch. It's it's really really funny, uh, even when it's not intending to be. But it's really frustrating because, especially when you're watching the dub, the sub this is less of an issue. But when you're watching the dub. Um, there is a uh, Kyle Colgren, who is an internet uh, critic on YouTube, has a video about uh, Romeo plus Juliet, the Laws Berman film, uh, and and in that he he criticizes the way that the actors perform the material because it feels like the actors don't understand the words they're saying, despite it being English. And he hmm. and he he says he describes the issue like this. Words, 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 <laughs> and that's what Gundam Wing's dub sounds like. Like they're saying words, and they are words that make sense in a row. <laughs> often, not always, but not, often. Not if you're trays. Um, that's well, trays is the number one. Uh, like, like uh, you know, offender of this for sure. With Zex being the number two and Lady Un okay, being the so number yep, three. That's my less good. <laughs> but like, it, it is. It is often very difficult to actually understand where the characters are emotionally in the plot. The plot's not that complicated. And and we're going to go through it today just because that's all that happens in these recap episodes is that they explain the plot of Gundam Wing to you. But something that I found frustrating going into these recap episodes is that it, they don't really provide us any more character perspective into what happens. Like, they, they it's not really Trey's... In 29 or 28 being like, man, that was fucked up when this shit happened. Or Relina being like, ah, man, uh, I never really met Duo or Catra, but like, it was fucked up when Sandrock exploded for Catra. <laughs> like, like, that's not really what these episodes are. Uh, but I guess we, we can get to that after I do, after we do my summary here. Uh, for 28, let me see here, or 27, 27 yeah. uh, The Locus of Victory and Defeat. 
I believe. Yes. Is that this one? That is correct. <laughs> worthless titles <laughs> for worthless people. <laughs> oh, God. I do love that trace quote. They they really um, like the, the, the rhetorical repetition and alliteration for Zex and Trace. Well, I, I want to get to that. Uh, Relina reflects on the events of Gundam Wing, but is somehow superseded by Hero during this narration? Unfortunately, neither of them offer much in the way of perspective into the events. They describe the descent of the Gundam boys, how their mission was a mystery to each other, and how they each had different approaches and goals. How their mission is overtaken by Oz's coup d'etat, and how utterly successful that coup d'etat is at pushing the Gundam boys to the brink. Relina, uh, at the end, hopes to see Hero again someday. Steven Hero, mm. in your watch of Gundam Wing, the season one experience, how how big of a hole in your heart did the absence of Relina in the back half of that leave for you? I, me- I mentioned, you actually, you want me to walk, I, I actually started writing, but got fr- so frustrated I was spending time writing <laughs> Gundam Wing that I stopped. You want me to walk you through my initial thoughts? Real quick. Yeah, please do. Please well, do. It's, it's, it's not real quick, but I, I don't this is a take... recap episode. This is a recap episode about recap episodes. I heard <laughs> you like real. recap episodes. I know sometimes I read from the notes too much, and I'm trying to like wean myself from that. But the problem is sometimes I get Gundam Wing mouth, which I also call it podcast mouth, and just when I'm bloviating about nonsense, because people don't realize. Like I was listening to a podcast in the car with my wife, and uh, someone she she was not being mean spirited about this, but like someone used a mixed metaphor, which I use all the time when I'm speaking on a podcast, or like the sentence wasn't like grammatically or syntactically sound and it was just you know yeah. general joshing but it's so easy when you're in a, on a podcast to forget what words mean like when you put the mic in your in front of your mouth and the headphones on sometimes just words lack meaning because you're trying to it's, fill up space or just make a point but not making a point i do it all the time it on turns podcasts. out so it turns out performance is a skill <laughs> so I have, I have some just general thoughts here i don't want to take the wind from out anyone's sails because some of this is like redundant but i i had more enjoyment with season one and i'll stop after like each point so we could like digest it together um i will say and i'm agreeing with ignis on this the story is a lot easier to follow the fourth or fifth time around i only say that because (laughs) it's really the second time around but you know generally to tell you about how i do things i think it's similar to how you guys do it too i usually start the week if it's a good week, if I don't save notes to the last minute, which is sometimes happens, uh, I watch the two episodes at the beginning of the week, and I slowly pick up the notes each day, sometimes like half an episode each day, so I can think about it. I need time to think. I'm not great in the moment, so I need like to take a walk and like let it sit with me. Other things, not with Gundam Wing. Gundam Wing can sometimes sit with me for weeks and nothing will change, but uh, I found the story easier to follow, even with like its abrupt twist and turnabouts, and I actually got a lot of... Th- like The one thing I enjoyed more with this rewatch is I feel similar to how like I get enjoyment from a crossword puzzle. Um, I found it somewhat interesting how when you apply pressure to these various political organizations, they fracture and they deviate from one another, like how you start with the alliance and the alliance severs from Oz, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of found it fun, like, am I actually understanding what they intend for the plot here? And then the narrator recaps and I go, okay, I did. So it's kind of the same enjoyment you would get from like taking a practice SAT test and then seeing how many answers you got right. That's not the point of the show, but I actually found myself enjoying just to see how much lore I absorbed. Like, I had a much there's, stronger grasp of the story this time around. There's definitely an element here, um, and this is this is going to sound like a compliment, and unfortunately it's not. Um, it, there's an element here where the plot is good. Like, there is, there is a story here that is good. The problem is, it has nothing to do with the Gundam boys. 
Oh yeah. And this and the story itself has no real grasp on the story it's telling. It's yeah. very very clear that and we can talk about this more in the next episode. It's very very clear that this story thinks that Trey's Zex and Lady Un are the protagonists. Um and I w- okay, so some you know, not to uh, derail myself instantly, but I was watching these recap episodes with my partner and after we got done uh, uh, one of the things my partner turned and asked me, which I think is indicative of what I'm discussing here, is she goes, is Trey's good? And and I said, well, no, but the show doesn't understand that it's not portraying him as not good. That the, the show is clearly telling a story about, like, there it is a general space war story, and in, instead of just having the space war play out in its internal politics, it's kind of having fun examining individual aristocratic members of its players and, like, their philosophical sort of point of view, and it thinks that point of view rules, and is constantly de- demonstrating it visually, right? Like, there's the bit in this recap episode, or maybe, no, it's the next one, actually, um, so maybe I won't talk about it right now, but there are plenty of times where it, it's really demonstrating that the Gundam boys are like, it, less than actually the main characters of the show, they are very powerful pieces on a board that are utterly out of their own control. Like, almost at no point in, in the, the narrative are they really doing anything very effective, uh, you know? Even though they have enormous victories, in it, it seems like, when you're watching the show, like, uh, Hero successfully, you know, uh, does the torpedo thing. One of my favorite Verlina bits. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Hero, are those torpedoes? You, you know I can tell. <laughs> it's, um, and and Duo's utter confusion when he tries to help Verlina. And she's like, what do you want to shoot him for? <laughs> and Duo's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> um, but the, the show really, it feels like, uh, takes the Gundam boys for granted at a certain point. And and it spins its wheels a lot. And after the first like five episodes, once the once um uh, hero and the boys have accidentally assassinated, um, Marshall Noventa. What is yes. Sylvia's grandfather's? Is that correct? Yes. Um. Yes. I I I had a miniature existential crisis uh, when I was watching it in on uh, Hulu because uh, they they spelled uh, his name Noventa T I A. And I was like, no, we weren't saying it wrong the whole time. We're, and no, we weren't. It's just it, probably Hulu subtitles fucked up. I have a metaphor that I would like to propose for the Gundam Boys. Yes, please do. Uh, I believe the Gundam Boys are roughly equivalent to uh, symbolic symbolic concessions that uh, centrist people give to us in the year 2020. Oh, please explain. Because, uh, ev- because leaders like Trey's say like, Look, look at these boys. They are great boys. They are wonderful boys. They are moving boys. I am moved by the Gundam boys. Aren't you moved by the Gundam boys? They give you everything you want. You have boys uh, who are beautiful, invincible. invincible. Get the alliteration yes. in there for Trace. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful boys for beautiful people. Be- yes, that's right. Beautiful boys uh, who who bring us a, a future uh, that you know is what you want. It's 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 everything. Isn't it great? Like they're they're doing. They have the cool mechs and they have all these things, but but like they're so. And then this this I think brings up the the criticism that maybe we were touching on before 
it's that there are moments where the idea of a political faction that uh, rejects the current trend towards peace of the alliance leadership. There's a moment there where the the plot is really compelling, but it but outside of the Gundam boys doing the, the assassinations, it's really they're really not involved in it in, like in any way ideologically. And the show kind of uh, also revisits that point at the very end of season one, where uh, the the super scientists say like actually. This was you. You you're all super soldiers, but you're teenagers too. This was a, this is weird. Why did we do this? Yeah, it, it there's uh, man. It the ideas are complex, but they're actually like the show is just not really equipped to handle them. Like it, the plot kind of just kind of balls out of the control of the of the the show. It seems like because it 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 feels the need to maintain the Gundam boys as central figures because that's it's a Gundam show. Um, but they're really, they, they, the, the show is interested in one of the, and this is not out of the ordinary. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like the, the Gundam shows have, uh, in particular, not focused too much on the masked rival, like had not had more interest in the masked rival's perspective or not spent time telling both sides of the story, right? Like they, that's what Gundam shows tend to do is show you both sides of the war. Um, but Gundam shows are also not afraid to paint one side as obviously wrong and or, 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 you know, not do that. They, they are also not afraid to show like, okay, both of these sides have problems. You know, that's not really what Gundam wing is doing. Like, okay. So one of the issues with Gundam wings plotting, uh, is that early on the narrator who is the mechanicians, number one enemy, perhaps, uh, it, it explains to us that the colonies are oppressed right that the the earth sphere alliance has has put the colonies in a position where they're not free under their own terms it, it, is is that incorrect they engage in retaliatory actions he repeats that phrase a lot <laughs> fucking narrator um <laughs> i don't trust that. that is that is the untrustworthy narrator okay i i know who that is um but uh so the 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 science perverts uh <laughs> each of their own accord uh, develops a super awesome mech and find an invincible boy to pilot it. Or I think that Wu Fei might steal it. He might have been just a friend of the science pervert, and he's—I don't remember. But I in any was, case, wasn't that Troa's plot point that Troa Barton is not Troa Barton? Well, no, Troa is definitely nobody. He's just a okay. guy with hair, and he killed the real Troa Barton, who is like a bro, who is like a shitty bro. Um, and the, then the science perverts, or no, I'm sorry, it was the science perverts who shot the real Troa Barton because he was a shitty bro and was going to use the heavy arms for bad things. Um, and Troa was like, well, I'm nobody, I'll do it. And they're like, all right. Because <laughs> the science perverts, that doesn't explain why Troa is good at everything, but you know, whatever. Um, I guess actually him being, uh, Catherine's secret younger brother or whatever, I don't remember. Remember all the circus scenes? Weren't they great? Yeah, that's that's what I mean. I, I I feel like the fact that he's extra good at all circus things would still require an explanation. But actually, it, maybe I don't actually care. I, I it's it's duo... metatextual. The the plot is acrobatic, just like Troa. <laughs> that's right. I will say when in my rewatch, I, I was uh, I was like clear on a lot of points. Again, this is like the fifth time I've watched this show in the last year and a half. <laughs> it's when they get the space that it particularly starts to derail with uh, the oon shit. Yeah, well, okay, I want to save that for, I, I think I'm going to propose that maybe we can zero in, wing zero in, wing on zero in, the yeah. boys and Relina for 27, and then I I am dying to get your take on Peace and War on 
for right. uh for maybe we'll save we'll save the the further trades and undiscussion for for 28. I agree. I I think that here the the thing to discuss and and I think they're the the one thing that I I you know supports my thing about the 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 plot balling out of the show's control and and the, why the re sort of jiggering of the plot it ended up being necessary the the it feels like oz doing the coup to the earth sphere alliance is like a, a completely un a like unnecessary step for the plot like it, it is very overcomplicating things because we as an audience don't really have a relationship to the earth sphere alliance right like they they are really a third neutral party it ends up being and so it, it i end up as like a from like a storytelling perspective i end up wanting Oz and the Earth Sphere Alliance to just be the same thing. Yeah, and well, and then it gets even like uh, you got the uh, the uh, the Alliance, you got Oz, and then technically the Specials is its own thing. Well, you have the Specials, but then the Specials are also just a, an arm of the Romafeller yeah. Foundation, or rather, Oz itself is just the military arm of the Romafeller Foundation. And so, like when you when you start like zooming out and out and out and out like that without a real like central point to get to or characters who are meant to be like the the story is so complicated with uh, all the Gundam pilots having basically no relationship to each other and and them trying to use that friction as drama points while also telling the story of Zex and that necessitating closer relationships to Trey's and Lady Un and Noin without actually like examining the things they're doing because we can't as an audience have necessarily like with trays they they kind of don't mind this is kind of what war un does for the first half of the show she is kind of the repository for all of our negative feelings towards oz right like she represents the harshest like most like fascistic boot of oz in a lot of ways for the first half of the show um and to the point where she's like foolish right like she often overreaches and does shit that that like trays ends up mildly mildly rebuking her for you need more grace lady un (laughs) she does like she is sent into like a spiral after that though to be fair like again though we need to we need to save that stuff for no but i I completely agree with like the political like i don't understand how anyone our age understood the show other than gundam pilots good oz bad but if you actually take a look like at the granule political movements like first off i think it's tough like uh, Toonami aired it once a day, every weekday. I think that makes for a better view- viewing experience. Like, I watched 28 episodes in about a week, and as much as that sucked, it also helped me, like, process... Even though this is all very... It's all very superficial and service level, like, to keep track of these moving factions, it helped keep it in my brain better. And I right. also was watching it on the elliptical, too, so I had nothing but, like, Gundam Wing in front of me, and that actually helped. Like, sometimes, when I'm watching Gundam Wing on the couch, the tendency... The siren song of more interesting things, like, I don't know, anything, Twitter or Resetter, <laughs> like, pulls me out sometimes, and I have to remind myself, like, I am on a Mecca podcast, I have to fucking take notes, watch this show, but if I don't watch it, like, moment to moment, I lose a lot sometimes. There are some episodes that I wonder, like, their, their target demographic, how they would understand this contextually. When the Alliance starts falling apart, there's the Major Sally episode with Wu Fei, where there mm-hmm. in mainland China there is a there is a a group of ne- formerly Alliance soldiers, like nationalistic soldiers, who want to retake presumably China 
or parts of China, and they overthrow the alliance, but then they're betrayed by their commander who sold them out to Oz. And I think I have it down pat, but there's also you throw Sally into the mix, who's fighting kind of on behalf of the former alliance, but she's also a rogue agent in and of herself. And then like you have Wu Fei in the mix, and it's just like kind of difficult to keep all that like together when you're watching a 22 episode show, 22 minute show, and there's other things going on on top of that. That's it, you have picked the perfect example. One I would have invoked myself for how all these elements overcomplicate the show in a way that it doesn't serve it because there's no it, it. It's not reaching a point there other than really war is bad. Yeah, like the, the thing about that Sally Poe Wu Fei episode is it. It also does give us one of Sally's better. You know, I, I it, that's not the I admire that that child episode, but that's an, yet another in the Sally. Is that uh, the uh, uh, the land Leo the land mobile suit episode? It, it I think be. it is. Yeah. Um, real quick, correct. like there is like a part of me like when I was when I was watching Gundam Wing, I was really into like overly complicated shit. Not even like things like Evangelion. Just like there are like Dragonlance. There are seven different types of elves. I'm gonna spend the night reading about these seven. You have the Qualanesti, the Sylvanesti. You got like some sand elves, elves with weird eyes. You have like yeah. six different centaur races. I'm just gonna like dig into this like surface level lore and just have a good time with it. Absolutely. I could see myself. Actually, I kind of got that itch when I was rewatching it because I was like. It's, it's people like one of the reasons I'm not speaking as an expert here, but I hear one of the reasons why people like Dark Souls so much. Like, there's a certain group of people who like Dark Souls because it's fun, like to pick apart the lore because it's like the iceberg theory. There's more under the surface. Whether or not you buy that with Dark Souls, a whole nother conversation. But they like like p- uh, stitching this lore together and trying to find like hidden secrets. Um, th- there's a part of me that like when I'm watching Gundam Wing, I kind of like want to learn more about some of these organizations. And I started digging into the supplemental. And like I said before, there is a surprising amount of supplemental info. But I could see myself as a young adult, like r- really digging Gundam Wing for that reason. I'm talking about when I'm like 11, 12, 13, when the show aired in the U.S. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I have a Ignis-specific sort of theory about how I was able to. And I think for me this explains why why I feel felt like I remembered Gundam Wing, and then we, famously we we revisited it and and learned the folly of of that assumption. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with visual shorthand. So um, the Roma Feller Foundation. One of the things we we start to see early on is that the reason that Trey's is the way he is is because of parting trying to fit in with the rest of this hoity-toity. Uh, uh, you know what they're supposed to be is like a, a a a like global unified faction of rich people who dress themselves in a in a, uh, a way that uh, uh, I I don't know if they're invoking specific time periods. My guess is that it's a mishmash of particular uh, you know uh, European or or British uh, aristocratic garb uh, in a way that is is meant to signal right away like who you're talking to, right? Like when you see um. Dermail or um Tuberoff. Tuberoff, the engineer guy. Like you, you like they're dressed like they're they're in uh, uh you know night watching or something like that. Uh and it, it instantly sort of like for one thing it, it kind of uh it, it tells you who you're dealing with just visually right away before anything else happens. But on the other it also kind of like they look silly, right? Like I I'm not going to sit here and be like uh 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 it, there's no quote unquote nobility or or I'm not seeing what they're trying to invoke here with this aristocratic garb. Like I get that. But they look silly, right? They look funny. Especially Tuberov. <laughs> looks 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 like a goof. He does. 
And but the other thing that it reminded me of is that at the same time I would have been watching Gundam Wing. Um, and this is speaking to, you know, your ability to retain complicated information, Stephen Hero. I would have been watching X-Men, the animated series, at the mm. same time. Um, in X-Men, the animated series, uh, in particular in its most famous Dark Phoenix arc, uh, one of the groups of antagonists is the Hellfire Club. This is something I'm sure I've, I've referenced in our previous Gundam Wing uh, podcast, but the Hellfire Club also choose to dress themselves in this exact same fashion. And so for a young Ignis, I can imagine myself being like, oh, okay, so this is just how bad guys dress in cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> like I could just and and you know for with that I could see myself carrying that that information about the show forward, right? Is that there were rich bad people, they dressed like that and they were doing bad things. And the Gundam boys were opposed to them. And and that basically remains true, yeah. right? And and that's like for better or for worse what these two episodes are trying to communicate that there was a, a status quo that the Gundam boys were initially fighting against. A lot of stuff happened, which changed that status quo to one that seemingly made them redundant. And now it is being revealed at the end of 28 that they are not redundant. That, that is basically the point of the space arc, in, 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 for the Gundam boys in any case. There's a couple of different things I wanted to shout out. Um, I, I was, uh, I, I, I brought this up earlier. I was frustrated with the way that Verlina is, is doesn't narrate the entirety of this episode. Um, uh, and, and it, cause I was ready for this to be, I, I don't hate clip shows necessarily. I think you can do them well. And, and I think especially uh, I want to shout out the Gurren Lagan episode 12, I believe, or 13 was a clip show. Um, and that did a really interesting thing of framing the, catch-up clips with the the pencil and paper uh interstitials right and in particular i always think of the uh the moment when uh simone is is grieving the loss of another character and instead of writing down the next bit it the pencil stops moving um and so there's cool stuff you can do with clip shows and i was hoping relina would be like ah man it was weird when I went to the Arctic and uh, <laughs> I was shouting at Hero about a message I needed to deliver. And he just was just, you're in the way. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, speaking of all-time great uh, great domestic help, I know we tweeted recently, but just want to emphasize how good of a job uh, that gentleman does helping really know with that whole escapade. Uh, pagan. <laughs> yes. Um, not only that, uh, but there's a... Uh, <laughs> That moment when uh, uh, Noin calls and she's like, "Oh, you, <laughs> you mustn't be in the way of this." And Relina's just like, "Hero, fucking kill no. that dude!" <laughs> it's fucking great. Oh man, it's an all time. Uh, um, I wish the show realized she's the protagonist. If the show realized that and gave her more screen time, we could be we have a little more meat on these bones. Yeah, it's 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 something that I feel like we're. We are a little bit robbed of like it, it. It's again one of those things that where the story or the plot of the show doesn't seem to realize where the story is from episode to episode. Like it, it doesn't feel like there was a lot of you know we we described it previously as a, a you know a laying tra- tracks in front of a, a running train, mm-hmm. uh, but revisiting it, it feels more like it was throwing all the spaghetti against the wall it can and watching what slid to the floor and what stuck to the wall. Yeah, you know. Um, and, and when it seems like when this second director or this, this next director comes in, his job is going to be to like, make sure that that spaghetti gets stuck there, you know? Um, uh, geez, I'm trying to think of other 
like bits to hit on here as far as the the Stephen, did you have any did you in your journey to the center of Gundam Wing? Did you have any particular moments you wanted to shout out or ask PMC or Nye about? Yeah, real quick, I want to get this guy's name. So Shinji Takamatsu. So Sunrise erased him from Gundam Wing because he's uncredited, but he did all the labor from twenty-seven to forty-nine to the end of the show. So I want to make sure we didn't erase him too. Um, let's see. So yeah, I, um, let's see. Like I mentioned before, it helped. So. It did help. I was on the elliptical, focused on Gundam Wing. That's kind of like an ideal viewing uh, environment for Gundam Wing for me. I have the same thing with Star Trek, too. Um, it's easier, though, with Voyager. I can just, like, I don't know. My wife asked me a question. I'm looking at my phone. I don't really miss too much in, like, five minutes. I could, you know, get really back on that horse quickly. Uh, Gundam Wing, there are times when I miss five minutes and Tro is dead. So I got a... <laughs> which happened uh, a day uh, yesterday. And I had to, you know, rewind that. Or I, sometimes Gundam Wing is one of those shows where the lore just doesn't stick with me at times. Even if I'm watching them back to back, I have that trouble. Like what happened with uh, Catra's dad? I had to go back just to like reacquaint myself with what he was doing there. Even though I know his final fate, sometimes it's really difficult to keep that in mind. It's compounded because sometimes what the characters are saying just doesn't make sense. No matter how many t- your fifth or sixth viewing, a Trey's speech still makes zero sense. And uh, same with a few other characters we mentioned. I will give some shout-outs. So, like, I'm not fond of the cast. Wing kind of has one of my least favorite casts ever. Um, for me, is everyone is various shades of angst. So there are very few dynamic personalities to play off of. I know there's Duo. I'm fond of Duo. I'm not overwhelmingly fond of Duo. But he, he's, a, he's a good, fun boy. I love Merlina. And Noin, I also am a big fan of. And she doesn't get nearly enough screen time. But that's the issue. Like, the characters I personally empathize with, sympathize with, or just like seeing on screen, are never on screen. And I'm left with um, Trey's talking fucking nonsense for 10 minutes. <laughs> I will say, I have a newfound appreciation for Hero, because Hero wants to get to the end of the show like me. He's like, just do it. Just, <laughs> I gotta blow up this Gundam. And he wants to get to the end. He's always impeded in that task. That's a shame. I, you know, I wanted to speak to both of you about that, about the, the writing specifically. I know I, I talked already about the words, words, words sort of uh, uh, That's, that was a, that was a helpful it. comparison. I like that take. Yeah, I will definitely link you that video. I think you'd enjoy his, his summer Shakespeare videos in general. But uh, the, um, the, the writing appears to be trying to invoke, and like, I don't know if the dub was trying to do this, but it's almost trying to invoke like, Austinian style writing, mm-hmm. right? And specifically when when Trey's is speaking, like in, when we're dealing with the the Roma fellers in general, I, I it just doesn't communicate well. Oh, you yeah. know, it, it it's just like you can understand all the words that they're saying, and it is a complete thought. And I feel like it varies from performance to performance. The guy who performs Trey's, who I believe is Beast Wars Megatron, yes, because I looked him up this morning actually. Yes, but um, the he's he's good enough at reading the words out and sounding like Trey's when he does it. It's just that like it really is this bizarre exercise in trying to grasp at meaning <laughs> and having it like slip through your fingers. Like it is, it is, and and he's not the like Noin. I think is the other character who who uh has like this sort of opposite end of this where she has often has sentences that a human being would say <laughs> but the performance is is one where it's tough to tell how she feels or like the emphasis is wrong the wrong syllable like and the word I, choice thinking- is super awkward too there's an, like if you take an sat in 2020 i've been proctoring for the sats not proctoring uh, 
we can't be in a room together, but I've been uh, virtually tutoring some students with SAT. There's an SAT question that will, like, in a pa- they'll give you a passage, and let's say that the prose is accessible and quasi, like, newspaper formal. So it's not excessively academic, but it's still not overly casual. And they'll throw, sure. like, in, like, an Austinian word or something that clearly doesn't fit, like, um, me thinks we shouldn't, you know, go to the grocery store. And you would, this is word fit in the context, you would say, no, I think, dot, dot, dot. Gundam does this all the time, where characters either get excessively formal or excessively casual in the most awkward situations, not befitting their, like, class and character. I'm a big fan of that yeah. girl. <laughs> and, so, and sometimes it's wonderful. And like, in, like, a, in 2020 sense, like, when mm, yeah. Zex is talking about, uh, he heard, like, a jinx about Gundam's, I was trying to screen caps oh, it or yeah. something because I had like a good meme in mind, but then the subtitles from the Japanese script were so dull that I couldn't get a good thing going. Yeah, it's it, it's tough because, and I think Zex is the other person who oh, yeah. who suffers from this, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the War and Peace and situation because like there's a there's a an, a bit in that episode where uh, Zex meets with Peace on and they have a whole conversation. Um, but I don't know if anything is said. It's it's kind of wonderful. Like, do you remember last week when I complimented uh, Xenosaga 1 for that um, gather all the necessary factors and wait for the other one to awaken line? Like, the, the reason I like that line so much is because it's so perfectly cryptic. It really could be in, introduced into anything and, and be equally meaningful to any particular thing. Gundam Wing has entire scenes like that. <laughs> But it's a show trying to communicate a story, so that's bad. <laughs> yeah, it feels like I'm watching like a Gundam Wing abridged version, like a, the internet thing. But no, it's actually Gundam Wing. Oh man, I'm sure that exists. It does it's exist. The thing. I'm, I, I'm yeah, I've watched the first does. few episodes of it. It's okay. Um, it's it's hard to get that right. I feel like um, uh, the Yu-Gi-Oh abridged walks or Dragon Ball abridged could run, and and that's basically the only ones that I've seen really pull that off. But maybe I'm wrong. I haven't seen Speaking the Breath of things. Uh, yeah, I watched the Pro ZD uh, Yu-Gi-Oh sketch classic oh yeah oh yeah all of his are great um I've, there's a um a, a feed i've been going down of someone reading the manga and some of the screencaps from the manga are incredible oh man this is what an incredible series but anyway one of the other things when it comes to the writing i, I kind of wanted to to tackle uh because the, the the recap episode doesn't highlight it necessarily is kind of how secondary the the robots are in this series in a, in a way that's like you know, I don't necessarily know how if this is like a, a point against Gundam Wing. It, it, the Gundam shows in general vary how, in how much they put the emphasis on the specific machines, right? Like, there's a reason there's an emphasis on the RX-78G in the original series, for example, right? Like, it's a, it's a unique machine, you know, um, because of its ability to generate beam uh, weaponry. Is that correct? Yeah, that's one. Of, I think it's part of it. Uh, but uh, the when it comes to Gundam Wing, uh, it it feels like it picks and chooses when the robots are personified and when they're not, in a way mm. that like I have a hard time tracking. Like you know, with, with Catra, you get it right because he's the space heart jerk, and so he he has like a kind of spiritual relationship to all the mech stuff, which is you know maybe best exemplified by the start of this episode when um, the the. Hayate or the V8, whichever is the red one, um, sploops out Hero, who is glowing, uh, and then he sees uh, a three-wolf moon of Relina over the wing zero, and Catra comes out to suck up all of his glow into his hand and put it over his heart. And, and like, the thing to understand is in that moment, 
Hero and Catra are trying to kill each other uh, because of uh, Catra is sad for reasons, and the Zero system is tough to deal with. And uh, Hero just doesn't give a fuck. He outright says in this in this episode uh, that he he views Relina and also the other Gundam pilots not as allies but as obstacles to complete his mission, which is very funny when you remember the episode where he uh, enrolls into school and gives a long thesis about the messages of the show and then claims that he's duo Maxwell while doing it. Such a good scene. <laughs> one, of the, one of the best scenes in the show, for sure. Like, for the, the absolute gall to be like, oh yeah, I'm duo. <laughs> like, I, I think we're going to lose a lot of that like charm and those scenes. I know we already lost them in the second like half of quote-unquote season one, but now that Takamatsu's directing and Akita's out, I have a feeling we're not going to get as many of those scenes. Well, I mean, I might take that if the show starts making sense. Like, if if we start to spend enough time with these characters that they they start to actually like manifest in some way, the other than the the sort of like hyperbolic mimetic way we're choosing to see them, which is fun. It's just you know, it's just different. Especially having covered like this is going to be the really interesting part uh, is like if you go back and listen to some of our early Gundam Wing episodes, especially me, I was I was prepared to be defensive towards the show. Like I was ready to, to put up my dukes and defend it. Uh, but now, you know, having covered like fucking Pat Labor, fucking Gunbuster, fucking uh, the Big O, you know, Gurren Lagan, like we've had some of the best shit that you can have in the mech genre at this point. Some of the best. I'm not saying we've had the best, just some of the really top of the crop stuff. And like for for Gundam Wing, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it holds up when it loses that sort of like I can forgive it for its hilarity sort of quality, right? Like a at no point were were I or PMC not enjoying Gundam Wing. The struggle was real in some episodes. There are some struggle episodes for sure. Um, and like there are just so many ideas that it just like it, something that I thought was interesting in in this is that it it fails to cover any of the Zex pressure points, the things that start to push Zex on the, like, maybe maybe I'm the bad guy. <laughs> like, um, it doesn't cover uh, the, the bad boys and, and their lobster mech uh, when um, Zex fucking rips the lobster mech in half. Uh, the tall geese. Alex oh. and Mueller. Yes, thank you. The only oh, reason I know God. that is because, not that I'm calling these people out, they could be very nice people. There's a podcast where the two hosts name themselves Alex and Mueller. It's Alex and Mueller's, like, Gundam Wing podcast or something like that. Really? They chose to... Hmm, and interesting. they, they okay. were, did not finish. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the struggle is real, like I said. But, um, but you, know well, who is, you know who is finishing Gundam Wing? Us. Yeah. That's right. We're neck and we're neck committed. with the Great Gundam Podcast. Oh, no. Don't say that. Oh, man. They're one week ahead <sighs> of us. Well, that's fine. That's fine. That, that, it was not a contest. If anything, you know, you can you can come oh, to us for the... They're great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're, I mean, they're the you should. Oh, I'm sorry? That's in the name. Yep, that's sure. true. They are the great Gundam projects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a given, really. True. Uh, uh, gosh, I got off track. Oh, I was going to mention, uh, the, the, the nice thing about this episode is that it's a lot like looking up a YouTube compilation of all the best fights in season one. Uh, it, it basically shows you the, the stuff that's worth seeing, which is anything involving the tall geese. Uh, the tall geese is a, a pleasure to see in motion. I know that's a weird thing to say, but it's just a gorgeous machine. Uh, gorgeous it, machine it is, for gorgeous people. Yeah, for, like, <laughs> for gorgeous. It's a, ple- for, it, it's a pleasure to see. Yeah, for gorgeous. I, heart I wish attacks. I had a good trace impression. It is the heart attack machine. Yeah, our, right. our first 
some reason number one most listened yeah. to episode. I think it's the title. Um, I, I was actually thinking about that the other day. <laughs> People are um, like, I love cardiac distress. <laughs> Sign me up. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to uh, highlight the the pointlessness of the show sometimes in this particular story beat where um, you can recall Zex undergoes uh, no, no amount of subterfuge to, to find and rebuild the wing Gundam for Hero so that he can... <laughs> So he can challenge Hero to a first to ten for a money match, um, and uh, what ends up being revealed is that Hero refuses it anyway. Like it doesn't matter. It ends up being something that that you know Troa is able to take advantage of eventually. So it doesn't make the construction of it pointless. But it does, I think, it, it, like gesture towards the way that story is treated in Gundam Wing, <laughs> where like. It will it will go down this path and then change its mind, right? It's just be like, well, actually, never mind. Don't don't worry about it. And and like sometimes, like this particular example, I don't have a huge problem with just because it's character based, right? Like it's just hero, and and this is his version of Zex's like warrior spirit bullshit, right? Um, but it, it does, I think, cleanly demonstrate how storytelling works in Gundam Wing, at least in its first half, in in that like. It is fully ready to introduce like complicated ideas, but also fully ready to just give them up. Um, but uh, on the subject of the the the, the action or uh, any particular character beats, was there anything you guys wanted to shout out? I think that's most of my points. I agree with you, though. I wish it was. I wish this episode was framed from Relina's perspective. I thought that could have been a clever, you know, frame device for this episode, and would hopefully give us some insight into her like internal thoughts. But unfortunately, it's not. Yeah, I, if I was to, to defend it, I would say that there's too much that she just wouldn't in, have been able to be privy to. Maybe you know, she's imbued with the soul of outer space. Maybe you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm I I am with you. I would be fine for her to be sitting in the red room and for her to be watching it on a television screen and giving us her thought. Like, I would be perfectly fine with that. Yeah, but clip unfortunately, shows can be good. Uh, I like the Gurren Lagann clip show. Uh, I'm partial to Ava's uh, Death and Rebirth film too because it does some clever stuff with framing. So I wish th- there is definitely the potential forefront f- fun clip shows, even though generally I do avoid them. Yeah, I, I think Stephen Hero's history kind of points out that these clip shows aren't exactly premeditated. True. Uh, they, they are panicking because there is a premeditated <laughs> version of this where Relina covers episodes one through 16 uh, because she was there and she wasn't there for everything besides that. Uh, you know, and so there there's a version of it that I think does make sense. Uh, where you could then have two clip shows to cover what's happened until then. But, you know, that's not how it went down. Actually, I'm going to talk about this more when we get to our Endless Waltz episode, but there is another clip show. Uh, I didn't know this existed, and it didn't come to the U.S. until recently. Um, after Gundam Wing came out, there was, an, I think before Endless Waltz, there was an OVA called Operation Meteor, and it's four episodes long, about an hour long, and they intersperse new scenes from after the show, but is essentially a collection of clips from the first half of the show and the second half of the show, and they divide the episodes based on the characters' names and whether they're odd characters or even characters based on the digits. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess with that, uh, it seems like a perfect opportunity to go ahead and head to White Castle and take a take a small break here. I'm afraid we're probably going to have to considerably restrict your activities here, sir. For defeated men like myself, restrictions become the foundation for a new strength. But in my case, I feel much freer being restricted. Lady Un, my love, rest in peace. 
All right. So that, that brings us to 28 Passing Destinies. Yes. Is that correct? That's right. That's a, Cruising. That's, a, that's a title that makes sense, just like all the other ones. <laughs> I, I would think the, the the locus of victory and defeat would be more of Trey's title yeah. than Relina's, but Passing Destinies sounds much better for Relina than, than anyway, whatever. So for here, I, I don't I don't have a, a, a formalized summary for this one because it it feels like it would have been covering a lot of the ground I covered last time. So so instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down the overall plot of Gundam Wing as I understand it. And PMC and Steven Hero, if if at any point I make a mistake or if you have an adi- addition to make, please go ahead, interrupt me, and and we will. We will go ahead and try and, and construct the Mechanation's understanding of Gundam Wing. The story begins sometime before the show with the assassination of Hiro Yui, which is the radicalization event for the science creeps who decide individually to uh, enact a, a plan that isn't Operation Meteor. They instead decide to just make individually cool robots based off of a one robot design they made. Uh, and part of the reason they decided to do it individually was in order to not get caught. If one of them gets caught that way, the others could still do their plan to overtake Oz, because Oz did the bad thing. Meanwhile, the on the Earth Sphere Alliance, they've more or less have peace has been achieved, more or less. Uh, it hasn't been through the best means. A lot of places are in a bad way, but more or less peace is here. So we're ready to disarm. And Oz and Roma Feller are like, no, let's not do that. So let's do a coup d'etat. Uh, 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 meanwhile, unbeknownst to all of them, the uh, the science perverts have successfully sent down five individual mobile suits in order to attack Oz in their own uh, uh, you know ways without real plans or understanding of each other. So far, is that correct? That seems right, right? Yeah, okay. I would agree with all that. All right, so the coup d'état happens when uh, the Trays is able to take advantage of the Gundam boys in order to assassinate all of the members of the people who want peace all at once. Um, and which gives Oz the opening to seize power from the Earth Sphere Alliance. While that's happening, uh, uh, Trey's friend, Zex Marquise, the Lightning Count, secretly Miliardo Peacecraft of the destroyed Sank Kingdom, is using his position in Oz to assassinate figures who were responsible for the destruction of the Sank Kingdom and also to destroy the power structure of the Earth Sphere Alliance that is currently occupying the Sank Kingdom. Checks Once out. that happens... There's some meandering for a while. Uh, there's some fights while Oz is basically, you know, basically making sure they have power over the Earth and destroying what's left of the Earth Sphere Alliance. And the Gundam boys make, you know, some some strikes against the the Oz at some point. But basically, the Gundam boys are unable to defeat Oz due to a threat against the colonies that Oz enacts at a certain point. This is the kind of the fracture point between Zex and Trey's and Oz, uh, or, or rather Zex and Trey's and the Romafeller Foundation, because the Romafeller Foundation... I'm sorry, go ahead, BMC. I was just going to say that part of that sequence is that um, Zex, af- having accomplished vengeance, Zex kind of, you know, as you said, is a part of the, the meandering plot, uh, stages a fight, uh, and a sort of illegal fight, a- against the wishes of Oz, against Hero... And then the f- part of the fallout from that is that uh, friendship with Trace has ended. Uh, beautiful flowing locks are my new best friend. Right. Yeah. Part of it is that Zex Marquise needs to die. Uh, uh, and like the sort of, I think Trace says that to him literally. 
uh, in order to sort of say like, oh, but you know, so you can be Miliardo Peacecraft. Uh, the Gundam boys are uh, otherwise all incapacitated to some degree and forced to go to space. Uh, and while in space, each of them suffer a different fate of different degrees. Duo is is on his own for a while without his machine until he's captured. Uh, Hero and Troa are captured. Well, Troa uh, infiltrates Oz. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah because, he's... because... All right, so... Um, under some diplom under a diplomat under a peaceful diplomatic pretense, Lady Un Un I keep saying Un Un approaches the colonies, saying that you know we're not going to take you over. We want to we want to peacefully persuade you guys to let Oz into your good graces. And the colonies come to the conclusion that we need to militarize, so they start using Oz to manufacture mobile suits, and they also start recruiting from their from within their own population soldiers and Troa disguises himself as one of those aspiring cadets. You know, while so we're... That's... Okay, okay you gonna... Oh, no, PMC, go ahead. I was going to say, while we're here at this moment, I really want the Stephen Hero textual explanation of Lady On during <laughs> these episodes. I don't know if... The problem is I don't think there is a textual explanation. I just think it's it services the, the writers. It's It services, like, plot twists. Which is it's kind of an insult oh. to her character because it shows that there really is nothing underlying her character other than the fact that she exists to serve the whims of her creators, which I know to a degree all fictional characters do, but it seems especially apparent with Un that the char- the creators don't respect her enough to treat her as her own independent person. They just want to use her in order to enact plot twists. Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, PMC, uh, the, the show has a textual explanation well, it's, when... It's, uh, when when Trey's gives Zex a, a phone call in the middle of that space battle, he calls him up on on Zoom and he's like, "Hey, bro. So uh, one of those Leo the land mobile suits out there. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a uh, one of the spiky ones. Which uh, Taurus? One of the Tauruses Taurus, out yeah, there. Ford Taurus. Uh, one of the Ford Tauruses out there has Lady Un in it, and uh, unfortunately, Lady Un's devotion is such that she it caused her to form a split personality. Words that he says with his mouth uh, about what's going on with Lady Un. So Trey's knows. That for whatever reason, her devotion to to Trey's is so strong that it, she enforces like previously her role was to be Trey's iron fist, the 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 person who could do the cruel things that Trey's with his beautiful soul couldn't do. Despite his his I, and and I'm using all air quotes for all those things. <laughs> I, I hope that is clear. Um, and so when Trey's gives her the new mission. To enter into space and to uh, fool all of the the space colonists into an alliance with Oz. Because let's be clear, the the show is pretty clear about the leadership, the current leadership of the space colonies being younger and not having a full comprehension of what Oz represents. There's there is one particular episode where there's an old man who is like, "Man, I don't trust Oz. No matter what they say, or pretty ladies they send." You know, there's there's one of those characters. And, and, like, that's a clear thing that they're sending. But anyway, there's there's a moment in the space battle where, where Trey's calls Zex and is like, Hey, Zex, totally glad you're alive. I'm super down on that. Also, uh, <laughs> Lady Un is in this space battle for some dumb reason. Like, I remember there's a, there's a whole series of events that leads her here and puts her in this danger. Um, and so Zex asks, or Trey's asks Zex, like, hey, you could, you should go save her because she's, she's having a normal one. <laughs> I'm apparently okay with it. 
Um, so, okay. Yeah, I shouldn't have so, said there was, wasn't a textual reason. I was so annoyed and offended by the textual reason that, like Un, I just blotted it from my mind. It's wild <laughs> that the trauma that she experienced from getting, like, a suggestion from Trey's causes her, and it's offensive, too, causes her to, like, basically become, have a split personality to the point where Zex Marquise flies up into space, meets her as a fictional representative of the defunct Sank Kingdom in order to, like, enact negotiations. And she's like, oh, who is this new person? Oh, you must be Milardo Milardo Peacecraft. Like, the fact that she, like, blots his existence out of her memory because she is peace on. It's well, and that's I, I invoked that in the last episode for precisely this reason. This conversation is bewildering. Yeah, like, like it, it is breaks so apart the fabric of reality in the show, which you could chide me for taking the reality or the integrity of the show too seriously. But there are some jumping off points for me. There's got to be, and this is one of them for me. Well, this is where it's it's weird, right? Because, or not weird, but kind of like a, a struggle because. It, it, on one hand, like I really want, to, I like Lady Owen when she's like this, yeah, but same. it's because it's so outrageous. It's so outrageous to suggest that this character is so weak-willed that she is utterly defined by the the wishes of Trey's, and and like it's it's a cartoon in a way that the show isn't doing on purpose, which is why it's hard for me to be one hundred percent with it. You know. Like, it is, it feels like it doesn't understand how ridiculous this makes Lady Un seem. Like, it, it makes her seem foolish. And, and, and I think the show wants her to seem powerful. You know, mm-hmm. like, it, it, I feel like they, they want this to be like, you know, she has these two masks, right? She has her, her hair in buns when she needs to kick ass, and she has her hair down when she needs to, you know, offer the open hand. The problem with this is that she's not a protagonist. She's she's not a perspective character. She so like we and and so the the for the story to have her acting in these ways on for the benefit of Oz, you know, a a, a faction of the story which is like just textually bad. Like you know, warmongering fascists, you know? Like the like the the struggle that we get introduced to in the latter half of the show is n- not one about how war is bad. It actually is one about how war is good. And and what is not good about war is when you remove the humanity from it, which is what Trey's ultimate argument is in 28, which is that the introduction of the Romafella Foundation and the Romafella Foundation's mobile dolls uh, it removes from Trey's the thing that makes warfare worth pursuing in the first place. And the show takes this as a, I mean... I don't know. Maybe this is me. And, and gentlemen, I, I will implore you to, to, to correct me if you think I'm wrong. But I think the show thinks that this is noble. That, that, this, that this is correct. That, that, that Trey's is correct to in, insist that, that if, if wars are to be worthwhile, they must sacrifice the living. Yeah, the exploitation owns. Um, so, well, but, so this is the, maybe the hardest part to swallow towards the end is when... Trays and Un become the the protags at the very end of the first season. You know, well, Un sacrifices herself for the boys to free them, and Trays, uh, you know, decides that he wants to be. He gives the "I want to be a loser" speech. Well, this is where it's really tough, and I'm, and I think I agree with you that it's a struggle here because the thing that the show is telling us in this episode is that all of Trace's actions were inspired by the Gundam boys. That the Gundam boys, when Wufei fucking ran up his Gundam's arm to have a sword fight with Trey's, Trey's was like, this is the most fun I've had in my entire life. Uh, and th- this, these Gundam boys are awesome. 
and, and it inspires me to continue my pursuits in a, with even more gusto, even though I'd never leave my estate and I just tell sex or Lady Un to do things. It, it, it's tough because the it, it, when they so thoroughly help our the protagonist we are meant to be sympathetic with on an emotional level with it it and you know chooses not to really have a, a clear point of view on the way that they have previously acted and and have previously created the situation that everyone is in you know you kind of need the show to provide a a, a place for the audience to react right so like I, you know i'm gonna invoke the star wars prequels for a second here um, one of the things that makes the Star Wars prequels difficult to swallow is that because everyone is on uh, acting on a green screen set or acting against a CGI character, sometimes information will be imparted, and because of the the actor's inability to really be able to react in a real way, and also because the director isn't super great at conveying this stuff to actors, like this is not stuff I'm making up. Every not everybody knows this, but this is well known when it comes to George Lucas. Faster, and more intense. Um, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, it, when the audience doesn't know how to react to information that is a, from a essentially a different world, it can be difficult to frame how your experience with the, that work, right? Like sometimes it's to, you, when a friend shows you a joke and you, you don't necessarily understand how you're supposed to take the joke. Was that too intense? Or was that supposed to be, like, horrific? Or was I supposed to find that hilarious? Like, that is maybe the most painful dissonance one can experience. And it's, I feel like, a constant experience with Gundam Wing, where the show is preventing you with information, and the show doesn't seem to understand that, like, the thing it's told you is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, to pull from another Star Wars example, um, has everyone here seen Solo... A Star Wars story. Uh, okay, I have so not. Steven Hero has, and PMC has not. So uh, PMC, there's a uh, there's a famous old Star Wars story about the Millennium Falcon, and the and the reason the Millennium Falcon is so finicky is that the computer navigation system is supposed to have been made up by three distinct droid brains that are in conflict with each other, which is why it breaks down all the time. And you know, I, I think it, it's safe to assume in at the time. That the idea behind it was that it was the end result of like many, many years of modifications and additions and, you know, black market changes to make it a better ship. And so it's, 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 you know, as an engineer, you're, you're probably familiar with sometimes you just fucking roll shit together. And if it works, it works. You know, <laughs> like you don't question it too much. I hope that's not an imposition on my part. <laughs> no, ship it. Sometimes you got to ship it. That's a, that's a part. That's, shipping it is a skill, just like anything else when we talk about any sort of creative endeavor. Sometimes, Shipping it is something you have to do. And so in Solo, uh, they decide to take this idea and they kind of literalize it by uh, having one of the named characters be a droid and uh, establishing relationships with that droid. And then something happens that which causes that droid to have to be installed into the Millennium Falcon. And and there's like a world where you're like, okay, I see, <laughs> I see what they were trying to do with this. <laughs> but what you've done is a, a I have no mouth and must scream sort of scenario without really because in, in addition to uh, the droid now not being a characterized and now being a, a, a spaceship, uh, uh, this droid had a relationship with Lando and the movie ends with Han and, and Chewie stealing the Falcon from Lando. So again, the implications here haven't been completely thought through. And this is a thing that feels constant, especially with Trey's and Lady Un, uh, and less so with Zex. 
Like, Zex's story is one that, like, tracks. It's just sort of, like, told in a messy way. Uh, at least when it comes to the dub. Like, it's not really a confusing story. It's just that the way that everyone talks about it is insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, when it comes to the this, this whole story, where uh, in space we pivot to one of, like, Okay, uh, the Earth was one with a military might, basically. The, the mobile suits that, that Oz was developing are, are just on a whole other scale from uh, the, the different kinds of weapons that were even on the Earth-Sphere Alliance. Like, that was something established early on, which was that the way that the Earth-Sphere Alliance was able to wrest control was that the mobile suits were just a, a step beyond what, you know, the, the, the colonies could produce. I think that's the case, right? Yeah. But uh, here we have this sort of um, uh, uh, what's the term for this? This uh, uh, like uh, diplomatic approach to to control the space colonies. A and, charm and, offensive. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you you can see this literalized with Peace on right. Like there's a shot where we see Peace on descending from the the ship that she was traveling on, and we see like sparkles chasing after her uh, in a way that I think is just meant to be communicating how like dazzling of a present she is but it really it, it's it with Gundam Wing it is very difficult to tell how much of what it's doing is a you know a visualization meant to just communicate a thing and how much of it is like literally happening like Hero and Catra and the glowing like I'm not sure <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which was a visualization and which is like a metaphor in that particular uh, exchange uh, there are a number of uh, different mobile suits we see highlighted here uh we you know we we uh, are introduced i think to the virgos at the end of this one mm-hmm. i don't think we had seen the virgos before this point um uh shout outs by the way i'm reminded of n- not putting together that oz's organization of the zodiac and <laughs> all of their all of their mobile suits are named after <laughs> zodiac signs uh- <laughs> but in any case uh, uh we see of course the ford tauruses that we referenced before <laughs> Um, we've seen some, and of course the the uh, uh, V8 and what's the other one? Hyatt, Hyatt. I thought it was V8 and isn't it like Merc- Mercurius? Mercurius? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, mm. you're right. Okay. They, Mercurius and the V8. You're and then right. they get fused into the Virgos. <laughs> That's true. Yes, the Virgos are more or less like mass-produced versions of those two combined. That's, yeah, that was the idea. Yeah. Yes, yep, yes, yep, yes. Yep. Um, uh, and then of course the Wing Zero. Uh, although not necessarily the Zero system. I don't think that has come into play yet. I, I think the Wing Zero is just... Well, I think uh, it's been, they, hasn't it been hinted at? Because isn't that why why Catra gets, goes on such a murderous rage? Because he actually builds it, and then he almost kills uh, Troa. Because right now oh, Troa is in space. Like, yeah. Troa is just drifting. Yeah. So, so the science perverts, I believe they mention that... Uh, like, one of them offhandedly mentions, like, oh, yeah, I designed, like, uh, a psychic computer, <laughs> for and it just didn't work good, so I didn't ever build it. <laughs> right, and then Catcher finds the planes, and it's like, well, well vengeance is the answer now, because right. I've... I've my father got killed in a tragic mining explosion. Well, my favorite yeah. video game is The Last of Us Two, and right. so I'm going to <laughs> build. We find zero. ourselves in cycles of violence. That's another <laughs> moment where, I, like, I looked away from the screen and I look back, and then Catcher is just blowing up space colonies. It's like, whoa, what, what the fuck? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. He has like a rampage where he just keeps blowing up space colonies with the the finger of God laser. Apparently, they yeah, were evacuated, that- or at least not populated. I had to look that up. I don't know if the text yeah. tells us that. 
I think one is and one isn't or something like that. There's He definitely – I think you're right, though. I think there is – One was like I a mining they, facility and one was like an evacuated colony or something like that. He, he he definitely I know he sends out like a warning he definitely does yeah. but I, I am they might try to step back away from how you know the moral event horizon that they were trying <laughs> to push him across here um but you know uh well these are are really interesting mechs like I think something that we we came to on our revisit of this show initially was that uh we had a lot more fondness for the the mass produced looking mechs than than before, you know we we have uh, our favorites among the the main you know cast of mechs so to speak of the Gundam Boy mechs we'll say, uh, but I think we ended up coming away much more fond of the Tall Geese and the the Leos and stuff like that. Um, uh, upon re re revisiting, did you guys have anything you wanted to shout out or, or bring attention to? I mean, I, more- I, you already said. All right, all all of the the mass produced uh, henchmen mobile suits are great in this show. I think they really like Leo, Ares, Virgo, Taurus. I think they all look cool. I've noticed a lot of people, given the re- recent uh, increased activity in Gundam Wing discourse, a lot of the people who do who do models are asking why aren't there models of these suits? And not that I do models, but I have to agree. Yeah, I agree. I think I shat on the. Uh the Leos early on in our podcast run, but I've turned a corner if I did, in fact, actually shit on them. I really do like them now. I like most of the mechs, mech designs in this. They're, um, I mean, of course, the, the main Gundams are very iconic, but even the rank-and-file uh, mass-produced mechs, I, I'm, I'm warming to their designs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Space Combat. Space Combat is usually on another level when it comes to mech shows. I, I believe there was that post going around, all the best fights <laughs> happen in Space Arcs. Um but uh, when it comes to story beats, there's really only one last thing to touch on, which is to say that there is a reveal. Uh, we we see that uh, Trey's he uh, he kisses a rose and he he wishes he presses F to mourn for for Lady Un, rest in peace, Lady Un, and he closes. How do you his laptop. feel about him having the two photographs? Hold on, hold. <laughs> <laughs> All right, finish your thought. I just wanted. I couldn't believe it. I lost my shit. I, the the fact okay okay so he closes the laptop he puts the two photographs down before on and peace on he turns around and he's like okay lady un would you like to <laughs> help me unveil my new satan and, mac and like he puts the rose in the computer and then she's wearing a rose too which like what does that mean it, it's just it's just i just don't know who they think they're fooling <laughs> who they, like what is it just Okay, so we have this beat of like, okay, Lady Un was shot by Dubrov in his silly little outfit and his pantaloons. <laughs> uh, and fucking Trey's is like, ah, oh, man, Lady Un, I, I, you were my, my love uh, smooch to this rose, which is to, to be the smooch to you. And I do have, as PMC pointed out, one picture of you in your war costume and one picture of you in your peace costume, which makes me think that this show really wanted this to be a thing of like two distinct characters. <laughs> and that seems fucked up to me, but <laughs> whatever. Um, and then again, like not... It's not immediately. I'm I'm exaggerating that, but I don't know. Like like two minutes yeah. <laughs> after that, it, it, Lady Ona is revealed to be alive, or maybe a dream. Like I I don't think I don't want to go to this Twin Peaks. I'm pretty sure she's just alive. I know. I, I think she's in Endless Waltz, if I remember. No, she definitely is. She def. I I know this character survives this because um of uh other characters she interacts with, but the it, it was just. <laughs> 
was just very Gundam Wing of them. In this last moment, Gundam Wing takes this shot at me as it pushes me out of the airplane. It's a um, very Akeda final shot, though. Maybe that's why he included something as you know seemingly ridiculous as this. It just seems like a like uh, it's the sort of joke they would have done on Dexter's Lab. There's a there's a Dexter's Lab episode that is meant to parody the structure of a Speed Racer dub. Uh, in the way that everyone speaks very quickly and it plays off of a lot of the Speed Racer dub tropes. And one of the recurring gags of that episode is that Dexter's father thinks that Dee Dee is dead, but that Dee Dee is just behind him and he just refuses to turn around. And, and like, that's the sort of, like, beat that this is. That That's the sort of, like, comedy beat that this is, that Trey's insists on holding a fake funeral. And, like, it'd be one thing if he was kissing goodbye to just the war un- picture and and kiss that rose and he put it away and he turns around and it's peace on because because it is a long-haired lady on that we see silhouetted um and and, and the and at least for hulu the subtitles name her as lady on there could be no mistake <laughs> of who this character is um so it's, it's actually un too they, they call her dose yeah it's shadow on d- oh, tw- thank you pmc for that i have a, a meme to tweet later thank you okay there you go <laughs> I'm mission accomplished. Yeah, for real. Um, it is it is astounding, but it, you know I'm burying the lead because it also does reveal uh, one of the critical plot points for the second half of the show, uh, the Epion mobile suit. Which I, I gotta admit, I accidentally wrote Epona in my notes the first time. <laughs> the Epona mobile suit. We're not <laughs> yeah. watching G Gundam oh, yet. PMC. Yeah, we're not watching G Gundam. My bad. <laughs> it has a tail though, right? Doesn't it? N- not a tail. It has a whip. A uh, whip. My memory's faulty. yes. One of one of the the it's a, I believe it's referred to as a heat rod, uh, it dis, despite it not being a rod. Uh, but yeah, I don't yeah. know. Maybe technically, I mean, fucking mechs don't need legs, so maybe they, they don't need whips either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the Epion is going to become a, a sort of central point of concern for this show for a little while. Although my memory of how specifically that happens is spotty. <laughs> We shall see how cleanly the plotting uh, is done in the future. Uh, before we start to wrap things up, Stephen or PMC, did you have any any other thoughts you wanted to share about these two recap episodes, or the the structure of them, or any anything that they reminded you of? Uh, I I think it's really interesting that this recap episode uh, doubles down on the extent to which Trays is cool and Trays is good, but also like. It, it keeps up with that until the very end, in which I think the manner in you know, we just been talking about the manner in which Trey's reveals that Un is must still be alive, and also I've been building this cool thing uh, is very foreboding. So it does make me feel like there is there is an attempt to continue what was happening at the end of the first season, but I I feel like this might be that first inkling of new direction because whoever whoever by this point. At the end of the second week of Interval, maybe the new director is like, you you clowns, this is, Trace is the villain, let's get a new <laughs> suit, and let's make him the villain, because he's the villain. Look at him being the villain. He's villainous. All right, let's continue the show. I, I hope so. I hope there is, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be that perspective, but if Cullen Wing could land on a perspective, that would be nice. Of, of some sort, just so we'd have a, 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 a means by which to approach the story. Um, uh, Steven, I'm sorry, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share? No, I mean, you guys touched upon most of them. I'm very interested to track 
I'm, I want themes in Gundam Wing. I want there to be something. The show flirts with themes. Like, of course, the war is bad, but again, it flirts with that idea, and sometimes it double down, doubles down on the opposite idea. There was a moment, like, midway through the first half of the show, and then there's a stretch of episodes that kind of flirt with the idea of maybe what we had on Earth was all right. Maybe colonization isn't inherently a good thing. They weren't really doing this in a meaningful way. Zex had a speech. There was Hero's speech when he gets up into space and he does the duo bit. You know, he gives a speech. He says, by duo Maxwell. And there was like, it was flirting with the idea of something like that. I hear the film Ad Astra is very similar, the Brad Pitt film. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a critic here because I haven't seen the movie. But it's like the anti-Star Trek, the idea that maybe you should value what you have on Earth as opposed to blasting off into space and colonizing things. And I thought that would have been a cool idea to track. It's, it's very surface level what I read. And perhaps I was even over-reading the text of Gundam Wing. But I would like some more – I would like thoughtfulness. And I'm, I'm looking forward to our road to Endless Waltz. I'm, I'm enjoying – I'm enjoying discussing Gun and Wing with you guys, of course, but I'm in- I'm looking forward to the spectacle that is Endless Waltz. Oh yeah, Endless Waltz in a lot of ways is going to be like our 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 prize <laughs> for for sticking with this. Endless Waltz is a delight. Like I I think I'm very much looking forward to. I hope I didn't uh, curl some monkey's paw somewhere, uh, but uh, I'm very much looking forward to eventually getting to that. Uh, but so for next week, you can expect us to be covering episodes 29 and 30 of Gundam Wing. Uh, we're going to be resuming our weekly schedule, so you should see that. You know, obviously not this Wednesday when you're hearing it, but the following Wednesday. And on that note, I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven Rababa Hero. PMC Trilogy. And, and you can catch us next time, because we are the losers. I love being a loser. All right, I'm going to go ahead and...